Love Talk Radio. of the music means yes we are back this is the long road to ruin and i am your host the mandated reporter and frankly i'm mortified mr mark rattledge and red right hand means this is it this is the glorious conclusion of the scream franchise podcast part two we will look tonight at scream three and scream four otherwise known as stab seven we'll explain what that means in just a little bit but, obviously, this is not a solo podcast. I bring on everybody. I, I got I got a co-host. I got people calling me all hours of the night saying, hey, boss, let me get in on this thing. So, let's bring out my glorious co-host and the uh, guest to discuss the horror franchise that was Scream. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the uh, ringmaster of Music's Three R's on 411, my good buddy, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do? David Arquette deserves to be let off the hook for his WCW championship reign. He was adamantly opposed to it from the time that Vince Russo, El Satan himself, proposed it. And in fact, he gave every cent of money that he was paid for it to the collective families of Owen Hart, Brian Pillman, and Darren Drozdov. So while that was one of the knights, knights that was twisted in the back of WCW, unfortunately, I shall not be screaming voodoo curses every time his name is brought up on this show. Were you flamed in the last two weeks about uh, your your issues with former WCW heavyweight champion David Arquette, or did you did you have a come-to-Jesus moment? What, what's going on here? Flames, no. It's just that um, 
in the course of getting ready for this particular show, um, I felt the need, since I was a little bit off my game last time, to go back and kind of break one of my rules and go actually read slash watch some other critiques of it. And, of course, one of the ones that I watched, as I mentioned before this show, was uh, Welshie's excellent uh, eight-part screen retrospective. Might be nine if you count the intro. No, it's eight. Yeah. Uh, his eight-part screen retrospective from over at that guy with the glasses, he pointed it out during his Scream 3 recap. And I realized, now, uh, you know what? Yeah, he's still an absolutely horrifyingly bad actor who kind of works only in very, very specific characters. But he deserves to be let off the hook for actually being a decent human being about that. And it's not like he was actually humping Vince Russo's leg to get the big gold belt put on him. So, in that sense, in all fairness, yes, I am hereby more or less letting fuck-a-duck off the hook for that. I think it's David Arquette that gave us Dean Ambrose. That's my personal opinion. If not for David Arquette, we would not have Dean Ambrose today in the WWE. Believe in the shield, Sean. Now I have to hear why. How do you figure? <laughs> because oh, no, because yeah, I, I have to hear, hear the explanation of this. Because Ozzy once snorted a line of ants. And having said that, here's our uh, guest. Saban once suplexed a train. That doesn't get you off the hook. No. In what, sure sense, in what sense is David Arquette responsible for Dean Ambrose? Our guest at this time... Uh, he was with us on the first podcast, and he's back again. He's our horror expert, host of Everyone Loves a Villain, and author of Locked in a Guillotine on 401's MMA Zone, the villainous one, Mr. Robert Winfrey. How do you do? I was doing okay. Then I had to rewatch Screams 3 and 4 in preparation for this, and that just brought me down. <laughs> All right. We've uh, we've wasted enough time, and I've pulled on Sean's silly string uh, a little too much uh, over the last 20 minutes. So let's get into this. Scream 3 and Scream 4. I'm going to start off with a rhetorical question, but it's a question I want to come back to at the end of the podcast, and that is simply this. Scream 3 and Scream 4. Would you call these, in fact, horror movies? They're certainly categorized that way, and I think uh, if you're looking for an easy label, uh, just to put them somewhere on the uh, in the video store on the shelf, sure, they fit nicely into the horror genre. But if you really look at it, if you peel back the layers and you examine these movies as we are going to do tonight, are in fact Scream 3 and Scream 4 horror movies. Let's get into Scream 3. When we last left Sydney. Uh, she was in college, and uh, Billy's mother hatched a plot to uh, kill her and all of her friends for causing the death of her beloved son. And as we all know, this all started with Sydney's mom having been uh, a loose woman and uh, breaking up the marriage between Billy's mom and Billy's father. So it all stems from that. We get to Scream 3. And we talked a little bit about this in the first podcast, You know, just sort of as, as a side note. It's a movie within a movie. So the plot of this thing is that since the incidents at, at uh, Woodsboro, 
there have been a series of movies based on those uh, quote-unquote real-life murders, and those become the stab movies. And the stab movies are sort of a <laughs> mock reflection of the Scream movies. And they're filming a stab movie at the onset of Scream 3. And that's where our movie takes place. Um, Sydney has gone into hiding, you know, fearful that uh, Ghostface, in whatever form Ghostface takes place, uh, t- takes shape, will come after her again. So she has gone into hiding. She has a job where uh, she doesn't actually have to deal with people in real life. She's uh, like a crisis counselor. Uh, Dewey has become a consultant for the Stab movies. And I forget, Gail. Gail's character is somewhere in Hollywood uh, still doing trash reporting. And that's where we meet our characters. Um, just a real quick to, to kind of get into this, when um, we can start talking about the different issues with this movie. The whole thing is set, is set up over the filming of Stab. And we, we have actors, we have a director, we have a producer, and we have... Um, this idea about this is the conclusion of the Scream trilogy, which is partially, I think, what I got stuck on, especially when we get to Scream 4, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Um, there's an, what's introduced as motivation for this movie is the, the idea of Sydney's mom. So uh, Sydney's mom, there's, whenever, whenever the, a murder takes place by Ghostface, they start finding pictures of Maureen Prescott and uh, there's a mystery that unfolds that Gail is in hot pursuit of that ultimately leads to Ghostface's motivation for wanting to kill Sydney, and it all goes back to her mother. And I'm going to stop there because, you know, we're going to talk about bits and pieces of this, but Sean, um, now that we've kind of laid out the the plot of this thing and, and where it's all going, why don't you tell me what some of your thoughts about Scream 3 were? Okay, I got some big things I need to get get out of the way right off the bat about this. First and foremost, let's make no mistake. This is not a good movie. It, it it's not a good screen movie. I it barely counts as a screen movie. To me, calling this a screen movie is about what is about like calling Chester Bennington doing that screeching Beavis impression of his in front of the DeLeo brothers and Eric Kretz Stone Temple Pilots. For the record, it's not. That band, as far as I'm concerned, is called Chester, Siffle, and Ollie. It's only Stone Temple Pilots if that's Scott Weiland standing there. That being said. Um, it's, the fact is, it's a movie that was never really supposed to be. The thing is, you have to go back far enough and at the end of Screen 2, when that movie had wrapped up, no principles of that movie, none of the major three cast members, uh, actually four at that point, I forget, not Leah Schreiber, not Nev Campbell, not Courtney Cox, not David Arquette, had been signed to a sequel clause. Nor had Wes Craven, nor had Ben Williamson. They were not secured for a third movie. Um, at the end of before signing on for the first movie, when they signed on for the first movie, um, everybody except Courtney Cox had been signed up for a sequel. They were already planning on following it up. At the end of the second, they figured, that's it. Scream is over and done with. 
that's why I don't entirely cast the blame on them for what made this so horrible. Because the fact is, is after Screen 2 did great box office, the Dimension Brothers and the incompetent pair of mildly retarded chimps known as the Weinstein Brothers, who have become so rich and so famous through Dimension Films just by and through the Weinstein Company, just by attaching themselves to other people far more talented and intelligent than they are, insist that they want to do a third movie. Well, nobody else really wanted to do one, but they managed to get Wes Craven back. They really had to harangue them, but they managed to get the rest of the cast, who were already going on to bigger and better things, back for this movie. Nev Campbell didn't come on until the very last minute, and by the time they got her on, she only had 20 days on set to shoot her part, which explains in part why she is barely in this movie, despite the fact that she's supposed to sort of be a focal point of it, and the fact that she's the only thing that ever makes it feel like a Scream movie. In fact, she was already committed to shoot another movie at that time, so that was all the more reason why she had to kind of hurry things up. So that's all a big enough problem. That and the fact that there was no real plan in place for a third movie. Where it really went wrong, though, the the one piece that was really needed here was Kevin Williamson. Because Williamson had a feel for these characters. He had a feel for his story. He had a feel for the world of the movie. Really, this... Wes Craven directed it, but the fact is, in this case, Wes's writing wasn't responsible for the series being brilliant where it's brilliant. You have to put that off on Williamson. So instead, they brought in a fellow by the name of Aaron Kruger, who I am readily going to admit right now, despite the fact that he is a member of of the head-injured orangutans that they locked in a cave filled with paint fumes and a fuck-ton of pot brownies to write two out of the three Transformers movies, actually is also responsible for the American adaptation of Ring You, The Ring. So I know he's a capable writer, but in this case, he admitted after the fact that he really didn't know these characters at all. This really wasn't his wheelhouse, but he was brought on anyway to write the script, which explains so damn much that I am going to have to get to because you have none of the characters that people have become connected to through the other Scream movies actually behaving like, sounding like, or even remotely resembling their actual characters. And so much of this just takes everything else that made the first two movies so self-aware and so smart and eliminates, strips away all of the commentary on the genre of the other two movies and just leaves it as a bare-bones, generic, very poorly executed slasher thriller that is just filled with holes. And it's it's very clear by this that when it comes to this series, you know, Wes Craven trying to do this entirely without Kevin Williams, that's like the time Jim Steinman tried to do an album without meatloaf. It's like, well, to continue with the comparison, the other three Force of Stone Temple pilots going and trying to make music without Scott Weiland. It just 
doesn't work. The magic isn't entirely there. And that's not to say that Wes Craven is an incapable writer. Obviously, he is. He's also a very capable director, obviously. It's just that in this case, everything came together such that he was directing and effectively directing, perfectly directing, in fact, the characters that Williamson wrote, Williamson conceived, Williamson understood. He, Williamson really got the rules, so to speak, to overuse the phrase that's used so often in this franchise, of this universe. And there are only fleeting moments, fleeting Sean, moments, where it kind of comes um, I want to actually vehemently disagree with one of the statements that you made, because the rest of it's fine. I think you're making valid points, but you, you're talking about characters. There's really only three that have survived from each from each of these movies. Your three core characters, Gail, Dewey, and Sydney, are, are not are not behave. And I'm not counting Ghostface. Uh, are behaving not like Ghost. themselves. What was that? I mean, well, Cotton is here is here briefly. So well, I mean, I'm not I've, counting. I'm not going to count him either. Um, your your three mains, the, the three characters of which this whole this whole franchise rests upon, are those three. And your comment was they're not written um, acting as themselves. And I and I and I really take issue with that. But I want to get Robert in here. Um, Robert, you you. you Share some of Sean's concerns about Scream Three, about it not being a good movie, um, so we can kind of get get around to some of the discussion here. So can we give Mark, me... may, I, may I point just this one thing out real quick? Yep. Just, just one, just one more thing. I kind of want to add to the whole importance of Kevin Williamson here. The fact is, at the time when this was being made, um, Williamson in particular, he had two other projects that were really tying his time up. And those would be, obviously, the fact that he was involved with Dawson's Creek and the fact that he was off making his directorial debut with Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Um, In my opinion, and I'm going to keep this as brief as I can, in my opinion, the smart thing that the Weinsteins could have and probably should have done was either A just put the whole project on pause until he was freed up to come and work on the script, or B, just scrap the whole thing together and just call Scream 2 a perfectly good place to leave off the whole franchise. Because it was never planned to be in three parts. Never at all. And it would have worked just fine where they left it. But as it stands, truth being stranger than fiction, we ended up getting a fourth movie that kind of mostly brought the whole franchise back roughly to the point of quality of Scream 2. So. Okay. Um, again, Robert, kind of 50 to 100 words there on some of the issues that, uh, you know, if you want to add anything to what Sean said or, you know, if you uh, have any issues, go ahead. Oh, I do have an abundance of issues. I have a separate abundance of issues with this film. Ha, ha, ha. Um, I think he did kind of point out that you know these are these characters don't feel necessarily like themselves, and that's that's a very relevant point with a, a few of them especially it just doesn't kind of make you know, there's just some logic gaps, uh, especially with Gale I have to i mean just there's a couple of sequences within this movie where 
Oh, whoever the hell they got to shadow her. Parker Posey. Parker, yes, thank you. And she is, and Parker Posey is very much the screaming, flailing damsel in distress. And instead of Gail, there are a couple of sequences in there where I wanted Gail to punch her in the face. <laughs> Again, I mean, she does in the movie, but you know, do the share thing, slap her and say, snap out of it. <laughs> I mean, there's one sequence at the end uh, in the house where they look over a railing at, and find, I forget who died down there, but someone's dead. In the house, they look it down there, then they look at each other and then scream in unison. And I just thought, you know what? No, that is not Gail Weathers. Right. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that one because I have a lot of things I, I want to respond to here. But I'll give you, I'll give you that. That that was a jarring scene that took me out of the movie, and I'm like, wait, wait a minute, she doesn't scream like that. Yeah, you know, you know, Gail isn't necessarily. You know, she can be scared in sequences. She can scream at things that are horrifying. But she's not a helpless bimbo, if we're in the horror world. You know, there are the helpless bimbos. Robert, we love them, but Gail's not one of them. And for her to behave like that is just completely out of character. I mean, it, that was one of the things. I would have to disagree with him a little bit on Sydney. I think the issues with Dewey are just David Arquette being David Arquette. Okay. Uh, let me... um. Let, let me respond to both of you. Give me a couple of minutes here to kind of piece this together. The, the, the least offensive, but then we're talking about the le- you know we're you're working with the least amount of material is Sydney. And I'm going to get more into this when we get to uh, Scream Four, but because there's a there's a line in Scream Four about Sydney the character that I think is dead on, in in how she's written. But when you look, so at I the- have, may I guess you don't Go do ahead. anything, you just survive. <laughs> That's where I was going. Um, the, the the problem with Sydney is when you look at the hero's arc, you know, the classic Luke Skywalker kind of a character. Hero, um, you know, the hero obviously has um, things they have to get through, um, hurdles they have to get over. And at the end of the movie, the hero should have uh, changed in some way, evolved in a you know, grown, you know, even into darkness you know kirk for as as bad as that movie was at times at least got to the same point he got in the first movie but that's a whole other discussion um point of it is he was different from the beginning of the film than he was at the end my problem with sydney and this is why i disagree that she's you know written acting differently than she than she has in any other movie is nope she's the same fucking note for four movies she's she's surviving she's just you know she's the juggernaut and nothing can stop her, you know, and, and she's the um, unwilling victim. You know, here, this, this killers keep coming after her, and she doesn't want to be the center of attention, which is a major focal point of four. She doesn't want all of this attention. She certainly doesn't want to die, and yet she's forced into these positions, and she gets through it. The problem is we don't know anything more about her than we did in any one of these movies. And to focus strictly on three for a moment, the only thing that's different about her in that movie is she is at the beginning of it, she has completely given up on trying to live a normal life, and she's in hiding. And the one thing I'll give credit for is, and, and, this, and if there had not been a Scream 4, I actually would have appreciated this more, is that at least her story ends where she's 
had some degree of a triumph. She leaves the door open at the end of the movie, saying, I'm no longer being pursued by crazy murderers. Okay, that's at least some change. I'll, I'll take it. But other than that, she is the same annoying techno beat for three movies, and it doesn't change up until the very end of Scream 3. Now, I take major issue with you guys saying that Gale and Dewey, except for maybe in small parts here or there, are not acting like themselves. And I'll tell you what, after watching all four of these movies, the conclusion I've come to is, fuck Sydney. This, this is the Gale and, and Dewey show. They are the most well-developed, most three-dimensional characters in all four of these movies. May I buy some pot from you? <laughs> I'm, I, in all honesty, Gale at least changes from movie to movie and grows. So that by, by the fourth one, especially her relationship with Dewey, and I don't want to keep delving into four, so I'll stick with three. What do they tell you about what happened between two and three? I mean, this is, and this is sort of the frustrating thing about hearing you guys is they talk about how they tried to have this relationship and they were, you know, they were uh, two ships passing in the night. They couldn't get it to work. And she finally left and he's heartbroken. And that's where the movie picks up. She, you know, she's trying to just move on with her life and he's still a scorned lover. And that's exactly the beat that they play. And, that has nothing to do with Ghostface or any of this, this other stuff, and it carries them through most of the movie. And then, you know, under duress and under all this pressure of you know being hunted and and, and attempted to be killed. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm thinking of two again. Um, thinking, sorry, got sidetracked thinking about two. So in three, you know, you, they pick they pick up where they left off, and you know, and he's trying to make her jealous and say, "Hey, I shouldn't have been thrown away like oh so much garbage." and you know, and of course she gets jealous of Parker Posey and all of that. I thought it was interesting. I actually was fascinated by that dynamic, and I thought as characters it fleshed them out a little bit more. And now, and other than the sort of the jump scare stuff, I thought, you know, Gail trying to, you know, Gail being the detective in this thing and her working with Dewey and them trying to figure stuff out was probably the most interesting thing about three to me. What was in the last lion taco that you consumed? Oh, my goodness. Quit, quit throwing tomatoes at me. <laughs> what is your no. point, John? What is, what is your retort? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm sorry, but you know what? I, I got I to gotta bust out the doctor on this one. Wrong, 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 wrong. You're Hang wrong. On. Before You're you tell wrong. me why I'm wrong. I, I just want to, Robert, are you with Sean here, or do you see where I'm getting, coming from? Uh, I see where you're coming from. I think Sean is more accurate than you are. You don't even know why he's accurate yet. I'm just, you know. Go ahead, Sean. Why, what, why, why do you feel like these characters are two-dimensional and flat and not changing at all, and, and you don't see what I see where they're the most fleshed-out characters of the whole damn series? You're wrong! <laughs> Yes, sir. Will not cut off my song. Uh, oh, you know what? In Dewey's case, I will not say so much that the that they changed the character itself. It's that the he it's that he is crammed down our throats through most of the movie. He becomes a a big focal point of the damn movie. That yes, was he's never trying to prove himself. 
he's trying he's been trying to prove himself since the first movie. He's the cop yes. that he's the cop that everyone thinks is a goof in, and, and he is constantly trying to prove his worth to people. And these yes. ghostface killings keep giving him the opportunity to do so. Yes, I know, but David Arquette fails at trying to carry the rest of the movie. <laughs> it, it's you know it's not he he just doesn't do it well. He never should be tasked with carrying a movie ever. But I, but I think that's because he's outshined by Courtney Cox, who does a better job of it. No, he's just... Jesus no. fit, man! <laughs> with cupcakes! Did we watch the same movie? No. No, 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 no. What made Courtney Cox interesting throughout the first two movies was the fact that she was not a screen queen. It was the fact that she had an edge, a hard nose, an ability to take her lumps and largely take care of herself. In this movie, she is reduced to Courtney Cox playing Monica Geller doing an impression of Gail Weathers. That oh, I don't think that's fair. Here. No, I think that's totally fair, because half the time in this movie when she's in peril, as opposed to previous movies, whereas she would largely get out of the scrape some way or another on her own, she... And Nev, when she was able to be in the movie, based on her limited shooting schedule, as I pointed out, which also kind of limits how much you can really develop her as a character, spend most of the time shrieking and running to Dewey's side. Oh, and that's they, not true. There's very there's a handful of scenes when she does that. She spends the rest of the time being a dogged detective. She's practically Batman. Well, okay, you got the dog part right because she spends most she spends most of it running around at Dewey's feet like my little cocker spaniel Toby used to do. They're intertwined. No, you know what? And there's a difference between being intertwined and being desperate for attention. Yes, I. Which is more what comes off in this one. Being desperate for attention, which is not Gale Weathers. That is not Gale. That is not the character that we become so engaged with that made her so much damn fun to watch in the other movies. And, again, I say the same thing about Sydney. Uh, now, and I will admit, there is a scene, and we will get to it later, because mark my words, I'm going to castrate you. I'm going to absolutely defenestrate you if you don't point this out. There is a scene later wherein I can actually totally forgive Sydney showing some weakness, showing up, actually showing total weakness, but it's also one of the best parts of the movie. But getting back to my point, um, and it, you know what? If that had been these characters throughout the first two movies, well, first off, the characters would have gotten annoying two movies ago, and we probably wouldn't have a third movie or even a fourth one. But also, it would make it forgivable in this movie if they were still behaving the same way. But... On the other hand, in this case, I blame it, and it's evident the fact that Kevin Williamson wrote most of the script for Scream 4, that Kieran Kruger really is kind of at fault here, but not necessarily at fault for the fact that he just didn't have the depth of understanding of these characters. And that's why Gale is much less engaging, Sydney is much less engaging, and you've got a character in Dewey that 
is thrust into a role that clearly, the way the movie plays out, demonstrates he was never meant to play. He was never meant to play that at all. He was meant to be a side character. So, but don't you? No, it, well, I, 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 I know the answer to this, so this is almost this is almost rhetorical. But, but don't you feel like that's what makes Dewey, I think, an engaging character? Is that he's written as out of his depth, but in peril, and one of the and in and, and in a position of leadership. You know, he was a deputy. He was, you know, he was a deputy coming to Sydney's aid, and in this one, he's, you know, he's a former deputy, but at least, he, you know, he's had gone through this now twice, and he's somewhat of a field expert. Oh, okay. You know what? When you limit his screen time and you limit how much of the story is actually focused on him, yeah, he does work in that element. But the problem is, here you are pairing Gale and Dewey up with side characters that are never actually developed. As characters, there is nothing to really distinguish one of the other characters. By that, I mean the other producers and directors and cast members of the Stab movie that's being shot. They're never developed as anything more than cannon fodder. Oh, no, that I completely agree with you. Look, well, I, the, I think the point that I'm well, getting at, Sean, is that is that Scream 3, especially out of all four of them, is a movie that's really centered around Gale and Dewey. And when in you know the initial comment that got this off, and then you know I'll let you say uh, some final words here, and then I want to move on, is that they were written as if you know Erin Kruger doesn't really understand the characters, which may in fact be true. I certainly see where she took the focus off mocking the horror genre, and in yeah. some of the you know the horror um, elements that we got in the first two movies, and she just kind of made it a a, a violent whodunit. Which is uh, that would be, a, that would be a he, actually. Yeah, he. Aaron Kruger's guy. Um, got it. Aaron Kruger's, I should have said he. Um, you know, that he uh, made it a violent whodunit, which is probably why it doesn't bother me as much as as, as you guys. Um, but I still think that there's a strong relationship there that the movie does spend a lot of time dealing with. You know, in the first, in, in the second movie... Um, it built them up to the point where they got together. And in the third movie, it looked at sort of the aftermath of, of that whole, whole thing falling apart and what it did to both people. I, I think it's short shrift to not acknowledge that at the very least. But give you the, the final word on this in 50 words or less, and then I want to ask Robert a question about Mudders. Oh, you're asking me for the final word in 50 words or less? Yes, um, You know what? If you had maybe even developed some more interesting side characters to go around Gale and Dewey, I could have maybe forgiven a little bit more the fact that Gale is so spineless and far too much attention is being put on a character that is not interesting enough to merit it. But unfortunately, the nicest thing that I can say about any, any of the other characters in the side movies, in, in the, any of the side characters in the movie, is the simple fact that Kenny McCarthy gets easily, easily one of the best death scenes in the movie and one of the only ones that actually feels like it was written for a screen movie. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. The one, the, the, when, they, when he starts hacking up people in the house, the movie kind of goes off the rails in terms of scary deaths. At that point, it just becomes, you know, people running around, people running around may, the house being stabbed. May, may, I ask, may I ask one question? Uh, just in advance... 
you were planning on at some point addressing the absolute non-fuckery that was the magic voice box, weren't you? <laughs> well, now that you bring it up, sure, why not? But um, we'll, we'll, we'll get there just after this. Robert, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the mom motivation and how it worked or did not work in this movie. Um, first, just you know, some of your thoughts on the, the mom meme in horror movies and, you know, did, did sort of editorializing on that in this movie work for you? Did it, did you feel like it was too cliched? What was just some of your thoughts? Uh, well, you know, mothers and the horror genre tends to tap into very Freudian influences for things when you bother to give things motivation. And the mother is, I mean, look, let's face it. Very few people in your life has have as much impact on you as your mom does, and that birth mother, adopted mother, stepmother, depending on, I mean, however it works out, that's a very influential figure in your life. And if you, and since we're kind of talking about how it works in this movie, not having that can be a pretty severe detriment. I don't. Not that I say people who grew up without their mothers all grew up to be psychotic killers and directors of crappy <laughs> movies. But it, it's not a good thing as far as that goes. And so, and it's also an easy thing to kind of relate to, to kind of get the audience going, to engage you with. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a cliche at this point to say, oh, I didn't have a mommy, so I'm screwed up in the head. And that gets pointed out at various times. But at the same time, it still makes sense. I mean, it's a cliche because it's true. It's something that resonates. In this case, I didn't... The only thing that felt forced about this to me was, oh, Sydney's mom ran away from Wood, from Woodsboro for two years and then came back. And she went to Hollywood and tried to make it as an actress. And I mean, it, yes, it happens all the time. And you know, it, it just felt a little bit forced. That I mean, if I have to imagine that if they didn't have to script most of the movie around Gale and Dewey, there would have been something different. Besides, we have to go looking through our, through um, studio archives for publicity shots of people. So I mean, there is that, and that annoyed that it felt a little forced. At the same time. When you get to the killer and his, no, I'm act, you know we're actually half brothers. I spent the, I spent all this time looking for my mom. She rejected me. She chose you. I mean that you know that's that that's a very relatable type of scenario. I mean it does happen in real life. It sucks, but it does. And so it makes sense to me for that. It, it kind of works on that level, but it just. From a pure storytelling perspective, I didn't mind going back to the mom, going back to you know some of her issues coming back to further haunt Sydney. I don't hate that. I just don't like the way it was executed. I would agree with you. I felt like it was a fine uh, way to um, set up the uh, this, this third movie. I don't think it was executed very well. Uh, Sean and I were actually talking about this prior to the uh, podcast. My biggest problem is with the, with the half brother director 
is he says he sits there at the, at the conclusion when he finally pulls off the, the big reveal that he's the, that he's ghost faced and all that, and he says, you know, my he says something to the effect of my life would have been better um, some, with her than without her, and you know she chose you and not me, and I'm going to kill you because she rejected me, and at no time was I ever led to believe that he would have been better off than he is now had she been in his life. You know, it's like he says this. And it's not believable. It's not set up anywhere in the movie. It doesn't pay anything off. He's just like, that's his crazy belief. And it's like, wait a minute, weren't you a famous director? I mean, they've established this is not, I thought they established at the onset of the movie, this was not his first movie that he was directing. And certainly, um, I would put director of any movie, including Stab, as being uh, successful than, say, um, the guy who brings catering. So I'm looking at this and... Granted, he wasn't supposed to be a sympathetic villain, but I, I don't even believe in his – in that sense, I don't believe in his motivation. I was like, I'm not buying this at all. I'm completely taken out of the movie, and the only thing that even saves that scene for me is Sidney going, oh, for Christ's sakes, I've heard this before. Take some responsibility for your own life. But his own life wasn't even that bad. You, you know what? I would uh, I would dis- I would kind of agree but disagree. I mean, I, I agree with what Sidney – what Sidney said. In fact, I absolutely love that. That is one of the. That is another one of the defensible parts of the movie for me, is that confrontation between Scott Foley and Nev Campbell. I think they played out that part so well, even if everything that led up to it was largely garbage. Um, but you know, you're, you're looking at his material success. You're looking at his career arc. And, yes, granted, you know, that all panned out just fine, despite his not really being nurtured by a mother, despite having been quite painfully rejected by the one person in almost any reasonable person's life that can be expected to reasonably to love us absolutely unconditionally. Um in a sense, despite all that, despite all the money, despite all the fame, and, you know, we see it so many times with so many other people who have accumulated similar, similar fame, that doesn't all quite blot out necessarily disappointment like that. Now, again, Sidney's got a point. He, he's got a point that he's an adult. He's got to take responsibility for his actions. He can't blame his mommy issues for it. But, I can totally buy how that would leave somebody that resentful to look at it and see that he himself had been rejected and had to kind of grow up, kind of grow up without her, without without ever knowing her. I I buy the resent. I buy the resentment. I don't buy the I would have been more successful stuff, and you and now you have to die. That I thought was a bit. I think that whole thing would have been better off without that one line about I would have been better off with her than without her. I mean, I suppose there's a degree of objective truth to that, but at the same time, what they and I'm going to point out the writer here. You don't need that line. Here's a guy who had the resentment, who and here's kind of for my money the crux that they probably should have spent a bit a bit more time on. Here you have a guy who's in Hollywood trying to be a director. He won some crappy award for a music video. I mean, 
you know, they've established that he's not, this isn't his first feature film, but this is probably his first big budget one. He's done some other stuff. He's right. trying to get famous. He's trying to get successful. And at the same time, Sydney's more famous than he is, and no one's heard from her in years. These movies are being made about her, and he set that whole thing in motion by convincing Billy to kill his mother. And if they'd focused a bit more on his, you know, I had her killed, I got him to kill her because she rejected me, I mean, you know, okay, that that still fits within the I'm resentful and you're a horrible mother type thing that he's thinking. And, but then what they should have done instead of, you know, I'm... You know, I'm so I would have been better off without her. I'm still angry at mom. They should have spent more time developing his anger at Sydney for unintentionally being more famous than him. And he's the famous director, but he's still stuck dealing with his baby half sister's life as his material. I agree. In fact, if I wish what what we had gotten with that scene was essentially, I had Billy kill your mother because you deserve to be motherless too, and now you know how it feels. Yeah, that would have been better. And I think had that, you know, period, we're done, good enough. I'm with you, fine, you know, I'm fine with this. If they wanted to take it a little bit further, and I think he does say this, he was like, I never thought that, you know, killing your mother would suddenly launch you as a, you know, Kardashian, you know, celebrity with absolutely no redeemable talent. So... And, you know, and now, you know, and ever since, and, and because you've got, you've eclipsed me having no redeemable talent, I set up this uh, recent slew of killings so that I could get my hands on you. Okay, that too would have been sufficient. And I think he touches on it, like you said, Robert, but they don't really express that fully. And, he, and he in te- instead, he just spends all of this time bemoaning the fact that, uh, that, he, that his mother didn't stay in Hollywood. That just seems to be his, his biggest gripe. Yeah, it, it's just a poor. I think that whole that sequence there, in terms of his dialogue and his expose and his exposition of his motivations, could have been written better. I, I'm with Sean completely about the whole sequence being acted well and shot very well, but you know, it's just some of the dialogue there needed to be changed. Some of the you just needed to look at the motivations of the character a little bit differently than what he decided to express. And the other thing he mentioned was when he's doing that is, you know, I'm a director. Even then I was directing, I was making a movie and then, Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that Billy and Stu were going to make their own and it was going to be better than mine. And now I have to come in and take credit where credit's due. (laughs) You know, there's a bit of a, uh, there's a bit of a continuity problem though. That's, that's also raised that again you you got to chalk up to Duran really not having any idea what he was doing and kind of why the rules work the way they do and that is the fact that you'll notice that this is the only one of the movies that has only one ghost face killer that um, bothers me I have to say and I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be one of the next quick hits that I wanted to touch on before we got on to Scream 4 it really irked me that they bucked the trend of every other movie by only having one ghost face not to mention the fact that um, unless he was the multiple man, how, I don't know how he pulled off some of the ninja routines that he did. Well, well, yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously the problem of the DDP teleportation device. <laughs> um, the little joke that my friend Jeremy Holsoff and I always always had when watching old WCW was the fact that so often because of the camera work, it would seem that one second Diamond Dallas Page 
wasn't there, and the very next second, Diamond Cutter, we just developed the excuse of DDP teleportation device. Um, so in this case, yeah, I mean, that does present the problem in that, you know, that that is some really amazing footwork that Ghostface displays. Not to mention get, the fact that how did he get all those voices on the on the machine? There, I set you up. Oh, I'm going to fucking get to that. <laughs> oh, believe me, I am going to get to that because I have a big symbolic problem with that part right there, too. But as far as the two ghost, ghost face killers thing goes, there actually was a point during the scripting process where they did have to. Uh, there was a point at which Angelina, the actress who is supposed to be playing Sydney in the movie, uh, was supposed to be the other killer, as opposed to just being somebody else that gets shanked in the final reel. She's certainly written that way early on in the movie, where I, I had forgotten who the killer was in this, so it was like I'd never seen it before. And I kept thinking, oh, she's got to be the killer, she's got to be the killer, and then she dies, and I'm like, well, that was a waste. Yeah, it, it really was. And actually, I think it would have been better if they would have stuck with that, um, because... And I, I think she almost would have made a more effective killer, maybe one of the most effective secondary killers in the movie. Sure, why are you killing people? Because he promised me bigger parts, and then and in that way I didn't have to sleep with them. Perfect. Well, well, yeah, I was, well, yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, in the first movie, uh, you've got the fact that despite him being a shrieky retard with a voice that makes you want to pound your testicles with a cinder block just to feel something less painful, um, Stu wasn't appropriately dippy psychopathy. Uh, it's one of the few times where the one character Matthew Lillard knows how to play actually works. Um, in the second movie, we had Timothy Oliphant, who doesn't work because he's not nearly so over the top, and he also has much lamer justification and connection to the whole story because he appears in the beginning and then is barely seen throughout the rest of it, among other problems. Um, but in this one, you had the possibility to have uh, a second, to have an apprentice who actually would have been a pretty good fit for that role, who would have had a justification. Writing her in as that wouldn't have been a big problem. But then for some reason... For God only knows what reason, they just decided, nope, scrap that. We are just going to have you basically run squarely into Ghostface's knife blade as you're trying to do the smart thing and actually run out of the house. Okay. <laughs> what? But that's what? What an absolute! What an absolute waste! You just did the opposite of what smart would have been. Um. To address the voice box, though, because fuck me sideways and give me a reach around, i got to address this one. You know, first off, fuck you, technology did not work that way. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, it has almost never worked that way, because for one thing, you have managed to get this thing to imitate the voice of a woman who has been dead for, by this point, I believe nigh on a decade? <laughs> of, for, of whom I can't fathom how in the world you had even a voice clip that you could have copied to 
scan into this thing, assuming you were even doing that. And also... She made movies. She, they had, they, he probably had access to the sound clips from the movies that she was in. Okay, but again, you also have the problem that this technology was not present at this point. This was before 2000, because I believe I was still living in South Dakota when this shit came out. No. No, no, no. Does not work, for one thing. And second, one of the most important aspects of Ghostface's presence is the voice. It is one of the very most important things. And it's just the biggest way that he's misused in this entire movie. Because for one thing, he's shown far too often. He he just, he's in so much footage of the movie that it takes away from the impact of his reveals that was present in the other two movies, especially the first one. Part of the fun of Ghostface was his entrances, was the way he would appear, was the way he would stalk people. And that included, again, the scary phone calls with that voice, with the dialogue. There's, there's none, of the, none of the arrogance, none of the intimidation that made him so much fun to watch, that made him such a joyful part of the other movies. Well, to your earlier point, Sean, I think this is, really, this is your most solid evidence that Kruger doesn't really understand the franchise. No. Where no, basically no. she takes the gimmick and says, you know, well, why do people like these screen movies? Ghostface. Let's put him everywhere. Well, and again, because, again, I'm going to go back to the Jenny McCarthy scene. The dialogue in that scene, the way he cuts her off in the ghost face, in the ghost face voice and threatens her. That, that is one of the only times I really felt like I was watching a Scream movie because it felt like a signature ghost face kill. Um, and, you know... Also, again, McCarthy for being an entertaining victim. I gotta give her this: she's not a bad actress in the right doses. In this case, she was probably on par <clears throat> with uh, Rose McGowan and even Drew Barrymore. May- oh, okay, maybe not Drew Barrymore, but was on par with Rose just for at least getting the most out of what little time she had. She was at least an inter- interesting victim. Let me That's put you on pause there for a second. She has a she has a monologue in that whole bit where she's basically doing an editorial about the film business and women and all of that. Just to, I felt like it needed to be acknowledged. Um, Robert, like fifty yeah. words. Did you have any thoughts about her inner commentary on the film industry? It felt like what she was doing there was what the film was trying to do. In that, the first two you kind of poke fun at. Horror movies, at horror sequels, at all of that, all the stuff that goes along with that in the first two. The third one does not seem like a scream movie, in that it's it has very little to do with horror. It seems like it's more poking fun at filmmakers and the film industry. Right. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. This felt that's this fine. You know, that's fine and dandy. I mean, go for it, make fun of it, but to cloak it in the veil of scream to. I don't know, attempt to lend credibility or to attempt to cash in on it is it's just it doesn't work. It's not I, I loved her I did like her dialogue. I actually like all of her interactions with uh, Ghostface on the phone there. That's kind of fun. And I like you know I like that whole sequence when he's 
stalking her, and he comes out of all the other ghost face costumes because there's a million of them. Yes. I mean that you know, that whole thing that whole thing works. I liked it. I just and you know, kind of to Sean's point, that's the only time it really feels like a scream movie. That's when you get a scream kill, because you know turning on the gas in an empty house and hoping the guy has a lighter and doesn't smell it. Yeah, I mean, that was convoluted. How many levels of stupid do you have to walk through to get to that particular oh, series of know, events working? You know what? Fuck every single last leaking on the carpet, staining everything bag of that moment. Because conversely, if the Jenny McCarthy scene was the second most screen moment of the entire movie, by the way, we have not gotten to my personal favorite part of the whole damn thing yet, that was the least screen kill. But it was the most diehard. You gotta give me that. It was the most diehard part of that movie. To quote Anthony Anderson, fuck Bruce Willis. Fuck (laughs) you too, Mark. No. You know what? No. Because the fact is that is not the way Ghostface rolls. Again, proving no idea what makes these characters enjoyable. The simple fact... You know what was I it the most Daffy Duck scene? No. You know what? I'll tell you what I would equate this to. The one thing, and I, I mentioned this when I was talking with somebody earlier. Have either of you mustered the bravery, the sheer testicular fortitude to sit through the Friday the 13th remake? You know the, the answer I'm going to give you, so Robert, I defer. <laughs> Um, I didn't. I didn't see it when it was out. I didn't have the chance. I haven't had the chance to see it yet. Okay. Uh, I've heard. I haven't heard much good. In ter- but at the same time, in a lot of ways, slasher movies like that are okay. not for the generation of people that you know. It, it's not for the younger generation. They're a throwback in a lot of ways to. Okay. Well said. Traditional slasher movies. Well said, but here's why I bring that up. The point in that movie where I knew that Michael fucking Bay and company had lost the goddamn plot was Jason channeling his inner hawk eye and shooting a arrow halfway across the damn lake and landing a perfect kill shot on somebody in a boat. Because that is not Jason fucking Voorhees. Jason is a giant mongoloid zombie that walks around and either dices you up with an edged weapon, finds some other way to melee kill you, or just dispenses with you with his bare hands on the days when he's feeling particularly saucy. But Sean, babe, Bubba, it's the 21st century, yo. We got to spice things up. We got to, you know, this is the Twitter age, man. Instagram. We got to... We got to make things all hip and new for the kids to get into it. So they blow somebody up in a house. This is the new age ghost face 2.0. You you heard? I wish mega herpes upon you. <laughs> no. You know, that is, that is just proof that just somehow Kruger did not get it because... Clearly, part of what part of the most satisfaction that Ghostface gets out of this is the stalk, is the intimidation. Whichever Ghostface killer you were talking to, you're talking about, that is the mo. 
God, Ghostface killed. I see what you did there. Um, but no, the, the problem with this is this is the equivalent to somebody falling asleep in a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, waking up, and Freddy Krueger is just standing there and just puts a shotgun slug in their tent spot and just wanders off. Well, if he had, had a if he, well, if he does it with a nine millimeter and he's doing it sideways, that's hip and new, and we can do that. And and, and we oh, even piss off. And, and you know what? And I am going to go ahead and deliver a great big fuck yo couch to Wes Craven for even including a shot of everybody running away from the damn explosion. <laughs> In slow motion, diving. God damn you, Wes! You're not perfect, but you know better. I'm not. I am not blaming Aaron Kruger for that one because Wes knew better. Wes knew well enough to be able to look at that and say, "In my movie, not just no, hell no." Nice try. In the interest of in the interest of time, get get to your conclusion, please. Talk about your favorite part, Sean. Let's let's go to the positive. Your favorite part. Okay, my favorite part of the movie, the part. When Sydney wanders onto the house set, okay, yeah. you you want to talk about a moment of showing actual character, the complete breakdown that she has as she wanders around and actually, for a few instants, manages to forget that she's even on a movie set. Just let me as she's, let me stop you right there for a second. That movie, that scene, you're absolutely right, is the best scene in the movie in, in the movie up until the very end. And handled slightly differently, it would have been hands down the best scene in the movie. I'm going to let you finish your point, but I wanted to say this. They handle um, her having this mental breakdown and do a little shaky cam, do a little you know silhouette around the edges, make it seem like she's actually having a nervous breakdown in the house, and then do the bit with the mom but it's an illusion, not fucking Ghostface playing around with his voice box, that scene is pitch perfect. Unfortunately, oh. it got silly right at the very end because... Oh, oh, well, absolutely. And the other person you got to give a lot of credit to for that is... And really what it reminds me of, it reminds me of the scene in Wes Craven's New Nightmare where um, uh, Heather Langenkamp finally agrees to play Nancy one more time to finally draw Freddy out fully. And she finds herself walking up to the Nightmare on Elm Street house. That's what it remind what it reminds me of, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, but also, you've got to give a lot of credit to composer Marco Beltrami, who worked on all of these movies, did the score for all of them, and it's one of the most shining moments of his score creating tension that I just can't imagine anybody else being able to being able to generate. It was arguably his finest hour right up until he got roped into scoring the Resident Evil movies. So, I mean, you know, props to everybody the whole way around cuz you're right. Right up until things got a little bit silly right up right up at the end and especially including Ghostface rising from the body pack in the recreation of her mother's murder scene, and even callbacks like Sydney blocking her door with the closet door, like in the first movie. It's one of the best tie-ins to the best moments of the of the series. 
and it's just it's a hallmark of the entire movie. It, it is worth watching, even if you've got to just fast forward just to that one scene if you've seen it before. It, it's it's that good in my opinion. You know, even even sort of a a, a reveal there where you know if they're going to do if they if they must insist on. Sydney's mother rising up and you know and taunting her and all of that. I actually would have been, I, I would have done it more sim- almost sympathetic. Where you know she draws Sydney, Sydney, help me, Sydney, I'm in pain. Sydney, come to me. And Sydney, of course, is now starting to lose her mind, and uh, and she does it. And then you know it, the mother grabs her and says, Sydney, ghost face. And then oh. Sydney, yikes, and fucking jumps out the window. You know. Uh, that's a little too Nightmare on Elm Street. That that's a little too close. See, you know I, what I, I would have preferred if you're going to do it that way instead of Ghostface. You know, you're on the movie set. You, I imagine there's some kind of a prop. I'm like a. You, you could have had a robot. You could have had a dummy on a platform that goes up and down to create that illusion. You could have done something where. It's maybe her mind just playing tricks on her, or it's just something on the movie that's freaking out and not going according to how it should be. And then, so now she's okay. Wait, I'm okay. It's not. I'm not actually losing my mind. There's something going wrong with this movie prop. And then Ghostface shows up a minute later. Yeah, that that would have worked too. Um, I want to just because we need to talk about Scream Four, and uh, uh, we have I'll, to. Uh, I'll get to you in yeah. a minute, Winfrey. But I, I want to say this. If there is no Scream 4, I like this movie a lot more. I thought with the, the, the stuff with the mom, for better or for worse, the stuff with um, the half-brother, for better or for worse. I, uh, before we move on to Scream 4, there is one thing, there's a couple of things in here I need to point out. that One that I enjoyed and one that annoyed me to no end in some respects. First of all, the opening sequence with Liev Schreiber, uh, I liked I thought that was, you know, to, to Sean's point earlier about, you know, not some of the other kills not being ghost face kills. I thought what he did with uh, Cotton and his girlfriend and that whole thing, I, I thought that was done very well. I liked that. The recorded message from Jamie Kennedy. Now, Annoyed the living I'll, shit out of me? Hang on, hang on, hang on. What gets to me about this is more in reference to, th- to two than it is in and of itself. Because in and of itself... I didn't hate it. I don't hate the idea of here's a guy who knows about movies who, and if you're doing this self-referential thing, leaving a message. I don't hate that idea. Here's what bugs the piss out of me about it. He recorded this before he died in Scream 2. Now, his death sequence in Scream 2, he and Dewey are talking about horror movie sequels and rules and whatnot that could potentially help him catch the killer because of the same rules that ha- that were going along in Scream 1. And Randy provides fuck all for knowledge. He's a useless waste of space. He does nothing and then talks to the killer and dies in the van. I mean, th- that's the sum of that sequence. You go to the movie expert for knowledge, he provides nothing, then he dies. Apparently, at some point before that happened, he was able to expound fairly eloquently on trilogies. <laughs> Which, I, I'm sorry, you're asking me to swallow something that makes no sense within the context. If he'd been able to, to be, if he was useful discussing the sequel, if that sequence had been done better and he was able to provide some meaningful insight in one way or another, 
then okay, it makes sense that he might be prepared for a trilogy, or he might have thought that far ahead. When you're able to say, in a trilogy, there's no rules, if you find yourself mired in backstory exposition as opposed to just more bodies, you might be dealing with this. If you're able to look that far ahead, you could have helped Dewey figure out that there are rules in a sequel. You moron. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, that really got under my skin because it made no sense. So that, I'm ra- I've ranted about that for as much as I'm going to. That pissed me off. Thank you, Robert. That was, that was enjoyable. But um, this, the, the movie ends with uh, Sydney gets together with the cop, um, Gale and Dewey. And, uh, why? Have... Uh, one more thing, because I have to mention that one of my things about the Scream movies, especially in 2, 3, and 4, is watching the actors playing the characters die, because there are some actors that I don't like. So watching them die is enjoyable for me. Patrick Warburton died. I'm happy. He was on the screen far too long before he died, but he died. Uh, what? I like Patrick Warburton. So do I. I have no idea. Robert also His career like peaked when he was the live-action version of The Tick. Everything okay. else is downhill. Okay, he's awesome as yeah. No, he's awesome as Joe on Family Guy, and his, and I'm still annoyed that the Rules of Engagement was canceled. Get on with your point. Rules of Engagement sucks. You suck. Get on with your point. How could they not kill Patrick Dempsey? You killed everyone else. Kill Patrick Dempsey. Oh, goodness. Uh, look, there's a, Patrick Dempsey has never been in a decent movie. Ever. Okay, but he wasn't playing Patrick Dempsey. He was playing the detective that has a thing for Sydney, and ultimately, the, she, for at least a time, after she's been scarred and chased by murderers, she gives her heart to... See, this is why I, you guys are going to suck when it comes to Twilight, because you don't know romance. This man... Look, Patrick Dempsey can only her, play his, Patrick Dempsey. She gives him her heart. And where he is, is he in the fourth one? Well, that's a whole other story if we can ever get there. <laughs> Patrick Dempsey couldn't couldn't make up his mind how he wanted to play the damn character. And I will also point out that Patrick Warburton was excellent in The Emperor's New Groove. I'm not counting voice work for this. His voice work is fine. His voice work is very fine. I enjoy that. Long as we're long as we're clear on that. Okay. Here, here's the thing, and I'm going to link. Jay and Silent Bob have a cameo. Yes, they do. You want to know how? You want to know your movie sucks? Kevin Smith appears in it. So Robert won't yeah, be joining us on any further uh, long roads from the ruin. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just I don't like Jay and Silent Bob. I don't like Kevin Smith. If they were going to be there for a cameo, they could have been there and wound up as bodies, and I could have at least lived vicariously through the death of Kevin Smith. Fuck you. Yeah. What he said. <laughs> Look, to, to to link Patrick Dempsey to my 87th attempt to move on from Scream 3 to Scream 4. Okay. I got that off my chest. Scream 4. I'm just good. We'll come back next week for more therapy session. Um, Here's the thing. Throughout the first two movies and most of this one, you know, Sydney has trusted and has been paid uh, and has paid for that trust in blood. And she no longer trusts. And then finally, you know, and the whole thing with, you know, Sean's comment, well, you know, how he doesn't seem to know how he's going to play this character. Look, almost every character in this until they, until they die 
is written as if they could or could not be the killer. That sort of adds to the mystery element of it. You can argue that it was not very well done, but that was the purpose of it. And so that's where Patrick Dempsey's performance is a bit muddled. But I think he still did a fine enough job with the material that he was given. The character, God bless him, is somebody that Sidney has to learn to trust, and then that trust is nearly betrayed, and then it turns out that he wasn't the bad guy, and she ends up with him at the end of the movie, and she's able to finally live in the light again. It's a, it's a good enough to great conclusion to what should have been the Scream trilogy, and at that point, they should have shut the book on this goddamn thing and moved on. Instead, for, because Hollywood, that's why, we get a fourth movie, and here's what I don't understand, and this is where we're, we're going to begin this discussion. This thing keeps being referred to as a reboot. Now, I never saw Scream 4 up until this past weekend when uh, I was preparing for the podcast. So I, had, you know, I didn't even know there was a Scream 4 until um, we started doing the research for this. And I kept, oh, it's a reboot. It was an attempt to reboot the franchise. Reboot, reboot, reboot. Okay, Star Trek was a reboot. Okay, that's got new actors playing old roles in somewhat of a new format. That's a reboot. Uh, Man of Steel, that's a reboot. The Dark Knight trilogy, those were reboots. This is not a Spider-Man. Yeah, The Amazing Spider-Man, that was a reboot. This is not a fucking reboot, okay? This is the same game characters coming home ten years later. This is a continuation of the same stupid story. So I don't understand why people are saying this is a you know a reboot. If you say, well, it's kind of rebooting the franchise and living it up, putting a fresh coat of paint on it and everything. I still have major arguments with that, and, and we'll get to it when we, when we start talking about the conclusion of this thing. But as far as I'm concerned, this was an unnecessary movie. This was, in large part, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, it fucking ruins three for me, for one thing. Because like I said, it ends perfectly, and then you shit all over the ending by reopening this whole story with Sydney again. If you want to do a Scream 4, and I said this about Paranormal Activity 4... Once they did the, 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 the first three Paranormal Activity movies, they should have shut the book on Katie and that whole goddamn family and started four with new characters. If they wanted to do a Scream 4 and continue to do these movies, the only character that needs to stick around is Ghostface. And if you insist on having characters from the previous movies, then doing it with Dewey as the sheriff of, of, of the town and Gail as his wife was fine. For the love of Christ, and this is why I get so frustrated with Hollywood, the insistence that Nev Campbell has to be in this and that this franchise rests on her shoulders is, in my opinion, false. And for me, it weakens the movie. Not to mention the fact, and, and, and let me go ahead and just sort of walk through the plot of this thing really quick. It's ten years later. Sydney has written a book about not being a victim. She's touring the book. It's the ten-year anniversary or whatever of the Woodsboro murders. So she comes home to do a signing and, you know, and publicize her book. And the Woodsboro murders start all over again. New ghost face and everything else. And so it literally mirrors the first movie in that, you know, it's uh, the, her cousin and her friends are your, uh, are your victims, potential victims. And the only new dynamic here is that the cousin is having to deal with the fact that she's got this uh, famous cousin who's famous for having survived three, uh, three attempts at murder and how that has affected her family. And some of those scenes are actually pretty well done, I thought. In any case, 
Um, that's kind of the movie. It's Ghostface running around killing a bunch of kids in this town, gunning for in gunning for Sydney. And the only thing that again makes it any different than the first movie is that Ghostface keeps reminding Sydney she ain't worth shit. And I agree. <laughs> By this point, I agree with Ghostface. She has no other discernible skill other than she can survive being stabbed to death. What would he do? Um, and then we get to the end of the movie, and, and as it turns out, not only is the cousin struggling with the uh, idea that Sydney is famous for nothing, she, she's actually angry by it, and she's decided she's going to use that to make herself uh, uh, famous by being Ghostface. Voila, that's the movie. Um, but let me let me say this, and then I'll bring you guys back in here. My issue with this is that as part of the franchise, I think it ruins the franchise. Standalone by itself, just measuring the movie in and of itself, I thought it was a fun I thought it was a new fun look at the horror genre. I thought the uh the multiple beginnings as opposed you know, the ECW opening medley as a beginning was fun and uh, an entertaining way to start the movie and to kind of look at franchises and multiple sequels um, and all of that. You know, I thought the uh, some of the stuff about how in modern horror there are no rules. Um, I, you know, I thought that was interesting. But I thought that the best part of this for me was at the end when the cousin goes, the, the ghost face goes into this diatribe about she doesn't need friends, she only needs fans, and you don't have to have any talent anymore. All you have to have is fucked up shit happening to you. So Scream 4, for me, was not a movie. It was an editorial. And it was a fun editorial to watch, but an editorial nonetheless. I'm going to go to Robert this time. You've heard kind of my breakdown of this thing and some of my issues with it. When we first started talking about Scream, you said, Jesus Christ, this thing goes off a cliff rather quickly. And um, and at the onset of this tonight's podcast, you had said something to the effect of you you know you really didn't like Scream three and four. Give me your uh, in a nutshell, what was the worst thing about Scream four for you? Teenagers. Look, I, I hate to be the I hate to come off like the grumpy old man who goes out and measures his lawn every time the kids walk over it. I I don't mean to be that way. Come on, give me one little get off my lawn. I actually had someone yell that at me once for a completely different reason, but I like you met my property manager. It became a running joke between me, my brother, and one of our friends. We were out installing home security systems, and one of these it was, the house we were at. It was one of those lawns. There's not a sidewalk. It just the lawn meets the road, and we were parked on it. And this old woman came out and immediately began, "Get off my lawn!" Was she waving a stick at you? Uh, I believe she did have a cane, yes. Awesome. She's my new hero. Talk but, about four. You know, there's... And how teenagers scare like the living shit out of you. They did nothing but add annoying teenagers to the franchise, is how I came away from parts... It, it, there's just nothing but annoying teenagers. And you didn't get the editorializing? I did. I did, and I, I get that, and I actually enjoyed that as far as, you know, her, you know, you don't need to have talent. You just need to have fucked up shit happen to you. Makes sense. It works. I get it. I like it within the context of a Scream movie. I just, I don't, 
I felt there was so much time on these annoying teenage characters, which, not a good thing. I felt there was a bit too much, oh, hey, we have to have more Gale and Dewey, so let's have some marital, inter- so let's have some intermarital conflict with, hey, let's introduce a character who, for some godforsaken reason, is actually attracted to David Arquette. I'll believe one woman in the world could be attracted to David Arquette. If that happens to be Courtney Cox, fine. I can go with that. People are attracted to men in power. Women are attracted to men in power. No. It's David Arquette. He's not wearing the big gold belt, so he has no power. Even if he's the sheriff, I'm sorry. I don't believe that there are more than a handful of women in the world, whole world, who could be attracted to David Arquette, and I don't believe two of them live in Woodsboro. She has crazy eyes. It made sense to me. <laughs> what? A, no, that that didn't help me very much. I didn't like that. Uh, the one of the reveals, and we thankfully we get back to there being two killers, which works works very well in this. Rory McCulkin, or Rory Culkin, not McCulkin. It's Rory Culkin, who plays one of the movie kids. Who with the long hair, when he's revealed as the killer, I just kind of went, okay, what's your motivation again? Yeah. I, I mean, look, I was willing to buy he was going to kill Hayden Penetaire's character. Okay, she's she's been kind of a bitch to you. You've had a thing for her for years. She's ignored you, led you along. What? Okay, you're pissed at her. I get that. I don't get that you're okay uh- killing everyone else. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold the phone. What's not right, to Maybe get? I missed something. Feel What's free to what? enlighten me. What's not to get? A, a cute girl talked him into it, and as we all know, a cute girl can talk you into just about anything, especially when you ain't getting any from anybody else. Two, he was, a, he was a movie geek, and this was an opportunity to immortalize himself as creating a snuff film, essentially. Reason enough for me, eh, given that it's often considered... Don't... Cute girl. Maybe it just didn't come across to me as much as it should have. I, Especially I don't think you like this movie, Robert. Eh. I, I... Okay, I'll, I'll grant you. I went into it. I rewatched it for this, and I went into it with some negative memories. I, it just it wasn't as I'll say this, it wasn't as annoying as I remembered it being. There are still good things here. His reveal, you know, I felt it could have been done better. Not the he comes up and stabs Hayden Penetier after she releases him from the chair. That worked. But I I felt like his motivation could have been touched on a little bit more when he's doing his exposition. And then at that point, I think I was still being annoyed at Anthony Anderson for being stabbed in the fucking brain and still getting up and cursing at Bruce Willis before dying. Okay, you know, it's a horror movie. I'll I'll go on a little bit with... Doesn't Hannibal you know, Lecter eat someone's brain and they're still talking? He ate parts of their brain, and that's reasonable given where he's, given what he was taking oh, from yeah, the location he, and how much he took. You can get away with that. The fuck you for me is whoever cast Anthony Anderson and conti- continue to contribute to him thinking he can act. He was also on The Shield. You know what? Quite frankly, I think he was put in this movie just so that just one time, one time in the history of his entire existence, David Arquette could say, I am not the most annoying man in Hollywood. He was good on The Shield. 
Okay, good for him. He played an annoying character very well. He happened to also be opposite one of the best characters on television in the last two decades. Fair yeah, enough. you know, it, it, it's kind of it's kind of like being in a wrestling match with Shawn Michaels. I mean, hell, Shawn went out at SummerSlam one year and for 25 minutes made a geriatric, barely mobile Hulk Hogan look like a world beater again because he basically wrestled himself. Hilariously, I might add it. Sometimes he went out at WrestleMania and had what many people considered the match of the night, and in some cases, match of the year, against Vince McMahon with all the Spirit Squad running in. Right? Right? And you know what? It goes It goes to show you that, no, that doesn't prove that Anthony Anderson can act. It proves that there are some people that you could put anybody opposite them, and they will make them look that much better just because they act that well. You're both wrong. Anthony Anderson is a fine actor. He's been in shit parts, and he plays shitty when he's in shit parts. When he was given a gritty part in The Shield, he played it perfectly. Perfectly, and he it wasn't played it good. well. I've seen that season. I'm not saying he's. I'm not saying he doesn't bring something to the table. What I'm saying is, you've also got Michael Chiklis as Vic Mackey, investigating him. You've got Walter Goggins as Shane, in bed with him. Glenn Close, not the literally. Captain. You've got Glenn Close as the new captain. You've got and Benito Martinez still dealing with the ramifications of his sexual assault. The thing is, there's nothing but greatness around that, so he doesn't have to be great to look but, great. Okay, but I don't. I don't want to get off on a whole Anthony uh, Anderson rant here. But again, I think, and, and I'm trying to be both, you know, but funny and critical here. But I think you you don't want to like Anders, Anders and Anthony Anderson, and so you're just like, no, what he does is crap. He was a bona fide menace in that season, and again. Yes. He's yes, he was. In, but then he's been in other things where he provided perfectly fine acting chops. But again, if you're, you know, look, the guy who plays Ernest, you know, I don't know if he can do a dramatic role or not. But if you only see him in Ernest, the, the, you know, it would not be uh, completely crazy to think, ugh, the guy has no range and he can't act. How would you know? Actually, he did a he did a half decent serious job in a small in a lesser known thriller opposite. Uh, the movie's called The Game of Death. It stars a it stars Jeff Speakman, I believe, in the title role, and he's he has a very small part in that as a uh, basically a Q type character where he's arming Jeff Speakman, and he does very well in it. And again, my I had no problem with Anthony Anderson in that movie until that sequence, and it just it bugged me to death because you know you can take brain trauma and still be okay. I mean that's established. You know, Hannibal Lecter was eating part of Ray Liotta's brain, and Ray Liotta was still there. And it's actually much more – he eats a lot more of it in the book, if you've ever read the book Hannibal, which is yeah. in and of itself an interesting experience. But he stabbed him through the forehead for the entire six and a half inches of that hunting knife. It was in there up to the hilt. There's nothing going on in your frontal lobe that's necessary for you to curse Bruce Willis. Perfectly fine. You know what, his pesky addiction to mugging is what it is. And you know what, it's his horrible overacting mugging. My God, there are sometimes, Transformers, I am looking squarely at you, when it's on like a pantheon with David Arquette at his worst, Jane Kennedy at his worst, and... Maybe a more sedate Jim Carrey. 
it, it, it's that obnoxious sometimes. And this is one case where all he had to do was just shut up and fall over. But no. And, and he had to up. He well, had to throw a, a couple a of punches. Wait a sec. Hang on. Why are you guys blaming Anthony Anderson for that as if there was no director on set? Okay, fine. Wes Craven, fuck you for that, too. There we go. Yeah. Wes is partially to blame, but you know what? He, whoever allowed that sequence. Okay, hang on a second. Let, let, let's get one thing straight. A director is in charge of the actors. And I go to Damon Wayans on the set of Bamboozled under Spike Lee for my example of this. He wanted to do the character a certain way. Spike Lee said, no, this is what you're doing. You know, at some point, actors got to act. They, they got to throw things out, experiment, you know, try different things, accents, limps, whatever. If Anthony Anderson, you know, decided that he was going to break out into a breakdance routine after being stabbed in the head, and Wes Craven said, yes, I love it, print. It's not Anthony Anderson's fault, Wes Craven's fault. In, in a okay, situation yeah. like that, it lies solely at the feet of the director who needs to know when to say, when to put an actor back in the box. I will say a big fuck you to Wes Craven for including that. I don't, and you know, I agree that, you know, as an actor, you have to reach sometimes. Anthony, even Anthony Anderson should know better than, hmm, I got stabbed in the brain. Let me get up shadow box for a second and then curse Bruce Willis for being the only cop in a movie who doesn't die. <laughs> well, it played which is the what, scene before. Which is what precipitated that whole thing. Uh, what the hell is that guy's name? Adam Brody, I think. It was upstaging, plain and simple. He was just upstaging and trying to make himself the center of attention in a scene where he had no business being the center of damn attention. Okay, we're going to be here. We could be here all night ragging on Anthony Anderson in that sequence. So we do need to move on. Yes. So your your major issue with this thing was the what were the actors themselves? You didn't feel like the uh, the new group of kids that are in this movie really brought anything to the table. That's the summation I got from There's from that. There's also, from a tonal standpoint, and this is going to be, this might sound a little weird, and because they keep throwing out the word meta in this just to say it, I'll say it, it might sound a little meta, as in metaphysical, meta-genre, whatever. I felt like instead of, whereas the original Scream took all of the clichés and the tropes and the trappings and all the things that even though we did, even that were maybe objectively not very good about horror that we loved and put them into a movie and referenced them and created everything that contributed to creating the first movie here instead of taking the things about modern horror that are not very good the things that annoy you, like pointless jump scares, endless twists, anything goes, the anything goes mentality, the opening sequence, which I was a little harsh on uh, the first time I saw it. It's, I maintain I don't like it very much, but it, upon second viewing, it wasn't as bad as I remember it. But it takes all of those things, and instead of trying to elevate them or create something new with them, we get just another stupid horror movie, is my feeling about that whole thing. It takes, you know, okay, here's Anything Goes. Well, we're going to kill a bunch of people, and it could be you. And, oh, wait, it's a girl that's a killer this time. That's different, except, well, please forget about Billy's mom. <laughs> I mean, it, 
it, I didn't it get the sense that, that, that did. I didn't get the sense that they thought that making it a girl was going to be different. By the way, I I, I don't think that's what they went for either. It's just, but that whole feeling of, well, we're just going to take thing. We're going to point out all the bad things about the current crop of horror movies and all the remakes and reboots and whatnot. And we're going to point them out, but instead of trying to improve upon them, we're just going to fall into all of those traps. Okay. Here's where I agree with you. I think that they missed an opportunity to elevate and really reinvent and just, like I said, editorialize. So I agree. And in that sense, the movie is a bit 2D. It's a bit shallow. Um, but I thought the points that the movie were ma- the points that the movie was making were valid. Um, I didn't find the kids. You and me are going to constantly battle over this over future podcasts. I can see it now. You have this. Uh, <laughs> you have this intense hatred of children, and you know, and teenagers. And I felt like their performances were fine. I thought they acted like teenagers. Um, I thought. I thought the sort of the thematic old versus new, you know, I, I, I very much keyed into that. You know, I, again, I just turned 37 and I'm listening to some of the dialogue in this movie and I'm very much identifying with Gail where she's like, yeah, that's so meta. What does that mean? I don't know. I heard one of the kids say it. <laughs> I, I said it because they kept saying it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, and honestly, how I find... does webcasting work? No, no, I, I get that. I didn't mind the old versus new themes. And maybe, in, you know, when you say they acted like teenagers, that's true, they did. Congratulations for acting like a bunch of morons. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the parts that are written, dot, dot, dot. Okay, <laughs> fine. I have freely admitted some of my bias has nothing to do with how they're written. It has, them to, it has to do with them being teenagers. Okay. So I thought the no, only... Note the future horror makers, if you're, if you're trying to get Robert to come to your movie, only kill the elderly and the middle-aged. Got it? No, <laughs> kill the teenagers violently with little dialogue or screen time. <laughs> I'm, dude, I'm gonna I'm gonna direct a silent horror movie for just for you. It's gonna be all killing teenagers, but that way you won't have to hear them talk. I'm done with that. As lo- <laughs> oh wait, wait. When you do the uh, dialogue cards that come up between sequences, if you put them in text speak, I will find you. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking like leet speak? Yeah, you know that's actually that would be funny. But I've actually just to yes, finish my point. Still, my point stands. That, that, I have a friend of mine who, who like talked to me in leet speak, and you know he because he's in IT, he tends to know a little bit more about what's going on in the sort of computer um, computer world than I do. You know, it's not something I just pay attention to. So like he'll say stuff to me, and I'm like, I I don't know what you're saying. You know, or he'll bring up something in leet speak, and I'm like, I I don't know, I don't what. You know, and again, it's 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 a lot of it's that I. You know, I'm an old man in, in a young man's universe, kind of a thing. So I, I bought into that. I thought, I thought it was fun. And I, like I said, I identified with Dewey and Gale. Um, Sean, I, I, I eventually want to get to the biggest weakness for me of this movie, which is something we talked about um, online before the podcast started. You know, the lack of a legacy. Um, but I, but I want to give you an opportunity to sort of speak to your issues with Screen Four. So, the floor is yours. Okay. Well, gee, to get through things kind of briskly. Um, Gee, so far in the last few minutes, we've complained about teenagers being obnoxious. And, Mark, you have actually chided a screen movie for having commentary in it. Uh, hey, kids, tune in next week when, for Mark's next attempt at the feudal, he's going to try to beg A.J. Gray to quit being a chronic masturbator. Should be fun. <laughs> it's a screen movie. Of course it's going to 
going to have commentary. Of course, it's going to have some social commentary in it, although I will admit that one line is a bit heavy-handed. But, yes, of course it's going to be commentary. Of course it's going to be deconstruction. Uh, that's obvious. Of course it's going to be there. But that brings me to my next point, and it's one of the things about the movie that really overjoyed me. Hallelujah! Kevin Williamson came back for this one, and it shows. He actually wrote the majority of the script before he had to bow out a little bit early, and Aaron Krieger had to come on, but he only did some rewrites, uncredited rewrites. But you notice throughout the movie that the main three returning characters from the previous movie are behaving like themselves again. Dewey is somewhat downplayed. He doesn't get as much screen time. He doesn't get quite as much quite as much focus. He's still there, still entertaining, but it's at an appropriate level. Gale is back to being hard-nosed, determined, and independent. And, oh, thank God, Sydney is also right back to being grown, independent, mature. She's no longer a high school student. She's no longer a college a college student. She's given more to work with because obviously this time she was actually fully committed to this one as opposed to just having 20 days to shoot it before she had to go work on something else. And I imagine was also probably not quite as on the fence about coming back for this one. They're also given more to work with in terms of a supporting cast. I'm going to come right out and say it right now. I don't like everybody in this movie. I'm not a big fan of all of them. But of the supporting cast, of the new players in it, this is one of the few times I can actually say that I really liked Hayden Panettiere and something. I really liked the character of Kirby Reed. Um, she wasn't obviously as spastic as Randy was in terms of being that sort of uh, that sort of oracle of the series, um, that that bastion of horror geek knowledge. But she brought her own spin to it. She brought an appropriate amount, just the right amount, of kind of cool, geeky snark to it that was entertaining without seeming like she was trying too hard. Because, really, that seems realistic for her, whereas, on the other hand, Janie Kennedy's performance was, well, as I've said so many times now, it was, it was one of the times when that one-note character that he knows how to play actually worked. It was actually an absolute perfect fit. In this case, Hayden really did quite nicely. Um, I even liked the way that she managed to fit into going from kind of the Randy Meeks role to in the moment when Charlie is duct taped to the chair outside like Stephen Orth in the first movie, she transitions into kind of the Drew Barrymore role and actually get this awesome moment wherein when Ghostface asked her the question over the phone about which recent remake... She spouts off every remake for the last nine years. Every single last one says, it has to be one of those, right? And she goes on for something like a couple of minutes with every single one. And it's one of those jarring points of commentary where, yeah, you realize just how many things have been rehashed in the decade or so since Scream 3. And it's just, it's one of the beautiful moments of the movie right up there with the opening sequence. Yeah, that's right, Robert, you heard me. Um, 
which, by the way, is another part where it felt like a screen movie again. We didn't get this in the third movie. We got this this awesome sequence of commentary on the genre itself, wherein they tear down torture porn, they tear down remakes, and they but, tear. And by they the way, tear I have to say the bit where um, she she pulls out the knife and stabs the girl next to her, and the girl says, "But why?" And she says, "Because you won't shut the fuck up. Now sit down and watch the movie." <laughs> yes, and they also tear into thinking too hard about these about these movies, and they do it with <laughs> what I think was an entertaining, brilliant movie within a movie within a within a movie sequence. Where well, in, the fact that they then watch that movie later on in the, it's not just right. in the opening sequence; they're actually watching Stab Seven, which I believe is that one. At the house party when at the in the closing sequence, well, not at the hospital, but before that, when they're at yeah. the house party, they put stab seven in, and you can actually see Kristen Bell stab Anna Paquin again. Well, yeah, but I, but again, it's it's something else that harkens back to Drew Barrymore and Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith, and part of that fun of seeing the big name stars get killed off within the first 15 minutes of the movie. I liked it, okay? Because it felt like, it felt for the franchise like coming home again. Um, For me, it was a lot like after suffering through the years of those horrible Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, getting Wes Craven back behind the camera for New Nightmare, and all of a sudden having it feel like his Nightmare on Elm Street again. It, It was such a breath of Fresh air after three. Um, quite frankly, you, you mentioned the uh, the new deputy in this movie. Quite frankly, I thought Marley Shelton was okay. I mean, she acted fine. She, I don't hate her being there. I, for me, your suspension of disbelief kind of goes out the window when here's a woman who could be attracted to David Arquette. That was my point there. She yeah, did a yeah. fine job. She was smart enough to actually wear the bulletproof vest that all police officers are issued that for some reason David Arquette never wears. Um, You know, I... When it comes to... When it comes to the movie as a whole, it's not perfect. Not by any stretch of the the imagination. Oh, it has its flaws, definitely. It's definitely not as strong as Scream 1. It's not. It's definitely not as strong as Scream 2. But I think it benefits from... Oh, and I'm sure we'll get into it probably pretty shortly. But might I also say, now this is Ghostface. I almost don't want to don't call what was portrayed in Scream 3 Ghostface at all. I almost want to just pretend that the Jenny McCarthy scene and the house set scene were almost like somebody just doing a damn good ghost face impression. This is just back to basics, vicious, absolutely no fucks by volume ghost face again. Um, back to the simple, the simple voice box, the stalk, the threats. And by the way, I did, I always did a chuckle out of this is not fucking Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly, Sean, I want to. I want you to address for me the um, some of the themes of the movie, uh, as far as the plot and motivation go. 
uh, it's brought up again and again and again, and I and I and I want to make sure we talk about it, um, give it its due. You know, this idea that uh, Sydney essentially is a do nothing hero. She she reacts, she survives, but ultimately there's nothing more to her than that, and it's and it, and, and that is actually commented on and then used against her within the movie. Um, alongside of that is this idea that we have a family member who has been made famous by tragedy and it affects all of us in all of these different ways and how they played with that in the movie. Did they do that effectively enough? Should more have been done? Did it hit the notes right? It wasn't even noticeable. What were some of your thoughts? I felt like, I felt like Emma Roberts as Jill ended up being actually a pretty good killer. Um, Again, you know, Charlie was kind of worthless, really. I mean, the the two As are most Culkins. Well, he was the dupe. He was totally no. set up, and I, and that's why I enjoyed that interplay. You know, he, he obviously he's not uh, the, the, the big hunky boyfriend. He's rejected, and she sort of wheels him in, twists him around her finger, and then disposes of him when she no longer needs him. Well. Yeah, but the thing is, he was just—he was so bland. He was so—he was so flat. And the thing is, is the two killer concept is perfect. It, it, they did it so well in the first one. It's just that in the second one, they didn't establish him throughout the entire movie, and he was so flat when they finally did get around to revealing Timothy Oliphant that. Well, that was kind of that was kind of a failure to launch. Third movie, um, obviously, Kruger completely lost the plot in terms of the importance of the second killer. Um, in just completely missing every merit of having him there, and in this one, it's just dull, just nothing. So it's like I hate to say this. It's killing a small bit of my soul, but God's sake, I have to. Matthew Lillard, you freaking dimwit, you were the only one who got it right. Why should that kill your soul to say that? I mean, I get why. I get you don't like Matthew Lillard. As far as being a secondary killer, he's the only one that's memorable. And maybe that's how the part was written. Maybe that's his spastic acting leaving an impression as opposed to Timothy Oliphant being gloriously over the top for about a minute before he's shot by Mrs. Loomis. I don't understand why you guys are bagging on Culkin so much. He plays an awkward teenager, and he's killed as an awkward teenager. I, I think he's a, an almost a sympathetic dupe. And that and you, and both you guys are just washing over that. It's like, ah, he's boring. Like, no, Had it been, that was the part. You know what? Had it been the other movie geek, it would have been more sympathetic than Culkin. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I you know, feel free to disagree. I, I he just fell a little flat. And I get that he's the awkward teenager and the awkward teenager sometimes is flat. But it just but nothing else that they have him doing then works. You can't then put the kid with the camera on. The kid with all the personality and charisma can't then sit on the couch and fail to make a move on on Penn and Teller or whatever the hell her name is. Um, yeah. You know, you can't have him be the one who's so easily manipulated by the sociopath girl. 
He's clearly no, but not he still there. Could have been obsessed with making his own movie. And br- I, I'm just but saying. But there's two parts to this. There was two parts to that character, and, and, it, and one without the other one doesn't work. It has to be an awkward character who who doesn't have a whole lot of uh, charisma and um, you know what do you call it self esteem and all of that. First of all, try getting somebody with a backbone to go and commit murder for you. I'll wait. You know, I could do that. <laughs> commit murder? No, I could get someone with a backbone to do it for me. You can get somebody with you can get somebody with a backbone and self esteem and somebody who does not need your approval, Robert Winfrey, to go commit murder for you. Are you planning on using telepathy? Mind no. control. All I gotta do is ask. Are you the devil? Okay. <laughs> no, I just happen to know people who are as misanthropic as I am. Oh, for goodness sake. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and moving on. Um, Sean, I wasn't sure if, if you if finished, but I want to I bring this in here. This is a side commentary, not necessarily having to do with movies, just something that was in the movie that more so than any of the violence and any of the killings or anything else like that was the scariest thing for me in the movie. This was the thing that was the only thing in the movie that truly frightened me and has haunted my dreams ever since. You want to know what that is, Sean? Want to know what that is, Robert? I'll tell you what that is, gentlemen. That is that I'm going to have to send my daughter to school in public with somebody who might, in fact, be walking around with a fucking webcam strapped to his head. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, I understand that we're three nobodies doing a podcast about movie discussions, for no other reason than we like to talk about movies and, you know, we happen to live in disparate parts of the country. So this is a great means for us to do so. And if other people find our discussion interesting, great. But we all have lives outside of this and things that we're doing. So, you know, I'm, there's no attempt here to be famous. It's nice if people listen to this. And if they don't, well, whatever. I had a good time talking about movies. Here's the thing that I'm getting at. It pains me and frightens me. And this shouldn't be news. We've been dealing with this as a culture for over a decade now, that nothing is private. That people have this intense need to live in a spotlight. And here's the thing, and this should not come as a surprise to anybody, what I'm about to say, but if everything is in the spotlight, then nothing is special. And that ultimately is what frightens me about the kid walking around his high school with a webcam uh, um, video blogging everything. Your life is not that interesting. Everyone else's life is not that interesting. It may be important to you and your in your uh, fellow students, and I get that, but still, that is the, the Faustian bargain with this Verstugger Internet, is that it has given a palette to for everybody to paint on, and therefore nobody is special. Which, of course, is why her point at the end of the movie, Jill's point, is that much stronger. You know, you don't have to have any talent. You just have to have fucked up shit happen to you. So, you know, if I happen to, you know, juggle chainsaws in the middle of this podcast, it might be memorable. But, you know, the podcast in and of itself has to compete with only a billion (laughs) currently on the Internet that might actually be broadcasting tonight. Hmm. But the but but the and actually real... about thirty percent of those also feature someone juggling chainsaws. Yeah, so there you go. Um, so, but the really but that's not even the part that bugs me. 
the part that truly frightens me is that a 14-year-old had sex with a 15-year-old in Canada, videotaped it, I just used an archaic term, and threw it up on the internet, and then got charged with child pornography. So I'm sitting here as a parent in the modern age, and at some point, not only do I have to talk to my daughter about, you know, you have to make good decisions, and you, you, know, and you shouldn't allow yourself to be pressured, and, and oh, by the way, should you decide to make a stupid decision in your life, there's a good chance someone's going to fucking video you and throw it on the internet. Beware. That, gentlemen, is scarier than any horror monster in movies ever. And on that, I have to agree absolutely completely. Um, you, you guys have no idea how many times over the course of, oh, God, I would say about the last year or so, um, I have come so close to just really shuddering almost all of my private social media accounts. Um, I actually, um, I, I, I killed my personal I killed my personal Twitter account um, and kind of, kind of, I should say, faked my own death. I have one. I'm not releasing the name on this show, but I have one and it's locked. Um, I, I would get rid of my Facebook if not for the fact that that's the main way that I keep in touch with so many people. Um, I no longer do live streams anymore except for once a year when I do one as part of Extra Life, as part of a charity drive. And it's a lot of it's because of everything that Mark just mentioned and because, as I've mentioned before, knowing a few people as I do who have achieved a pretty a pretty substantial measure, actually, of Internet fame and having seen what's become of their privacy, um, it's, it's something that even though it hasn't quite impacted me quite as much, it gives me a real conscience about continuing to be a part of that of that system of that culture, that's why that's why I so rarely post anything, any real personal updates to my private Facebook account anymore. Um, it's why, you know, I got to agree with something that uh, Nash and Tara Dinahan said on uh, Radio Dead Air a while back, and that is, in another twenty years, there is not going to be a single electable candidate for office because of everything that is available because of everything that people post with such a no fucks given cavalier attitude online all the time. Um, the things that people share. I was just reading on the Daily Beast earlier today that a guy who claims to have the world's biggest recorded penis was actually approached by a small-time music producer to make a YouTube video and song for it to boost his acting career, legitimate acting, believe it or not, he says he doesn't want to do porn, called simply, It's Too Big. <laughs> just, just swirl that around in your mouth for a, in your mouth for a second. Yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> um, consider that. Somebody... If somebody is getting mainstream news coverage for having the world's longest man meet, Octomom, I, 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 I really Octomom says it all. Okay. Another good one. But you know well, what? what tr- here's here's the thing, 
and Robert, if you want to comment on this, go ahead, and then we'll we'll get back into the movie here. I'm sure people listening to this going seriously. The three of you shut the fuck up to talk about movies, but I just think to you know, in my 37 years of being on this planet and eating exotic game meat, um, <laughs> I just think to all the awkward moments I had just as a teenager. You know, never mind shit that I did as as an adolescent. Never mind the whirlwind of bad decisions I made in my 20s. Let's just talk about 13 through 18. You know, the five years when my father said I turned into a total asshole. And I think think about, you know, intimate uh, situations in my life and how awkward they were. and, and And I think about you know, the things that made me the person that I am today, you know, the, the the bricks that became the foundation of the adult that I eventually became once I grew up, but how I, you know, and they're important. They're, they're things that I can now convey to my child. They're um, experiences that I can draw upon to make better decisions, you know, as a middle-aged person. And I, and I treasure those things for that, in that respect. But for God's sakes, I'm glad at that, at that time there wasn't a webcam around. I it I'm sitting here just um, cringing at the idea of anything I did in those days that wasn't already recorded on camera because a few things were being recorded on camera. I, I just and no child should have to deal with that twenty four seven. We have enough problems as it is with cyberbullying and and all this other stuff. And I'm not trying to do a PA here. Be you know I'm, I'm not literally not trying to get off on that far of a tangent, but it, the idea that this character is running around, you know, just fil- just just randomly running up to people in, in his school and, and filming them, yes, it was po- for the movie, and I understand all of that, but pretend for a moment that this isn't Scream 4, and that's just what he does. How is that fair to any other kid at that school in terms of they have a right to just live their life? G.I. Joe! <laughs> Thank you for breaking the tension. Robert, did we lose you? No, no, I'm still here, and I'm just... I can't disagree with any of that. I mean, well, when I was a teenager, I suffered from severe depression, and I was quite morbid. And it, elements of that contributed to my love of horror movies, which I love a great deal and I enjoy. But the notion that, thinking back on it, me as a 15-year-old who knew a dozen different ways to kill people, three of the most painful ways to do it, how best to do it, how best to get away with it, various flammable concoctions, why, you know, I knew a lot of odd, odd stuff, and I had sort of a compulsive need to shock people because, again, I suffered from depression, and that was part of my deal. The notion of that poor kid being on Twitter and putting out into the world you know, if I wanted to kill you and not have you respond to it, I'd shoot you over the left eyebrow, which is the no-response zone. Or if I didn't want to clean up a mess, I'd stab you through the brainstem with a sharp knife. It would come out your mouth at about a 36-degree angle, because that shuts down all automatic functions to the body, including your heart beating. So there's very little blood spatter to clean up, because the heart's over beat only goes once. That's, that's, you're way I, over 140 characters. I know, but I'm just saying. <laughs> the notion that I would be out there putting that into... An, that's the other thing about the internet. Once it's out there, it's out there. It doesn't go away. Yep. Internet is forever. Yes. I mean, you are writing your own life story for billions of people to see, and you're writing it in ink. 
And your brain is also at a point where you are is not developed enough to where you fully understand the consequences of that. You know, well, the reason why it's statutory rape is because under the age of 18, you are deemed not old enough or mature enough to make uh, decisions about your body, sex or otherwise. Isn't it, uh, isn't it 17 in some states? It's 16, it's 16 in some 16 states. Here. It's 16 in some in some states, but whatever the age of consent is, whatever the age of adulthood, which is really funny to me. And so, it, so in some states, you you can be as young as 14, 15, 16 years old and be uh, and and agree to consensual sex, but you can't join the military, and you still have to wait another three years before you can drink. Fantastic. Point being, as as Robert is saying, and just to sort of conclude this point, it uh, you know. I don't know what the answer is, but the direction that we're going is not good. And that little webcam uh, on the side of that kid's head was, was a, a sign of things to come and be the scariest part of that film. Um, I want to talk a little bit about legacy, and then we're, we're going to close up shop here. My biggest problem with Scream 4 is that it's missing a character, or they it's either missing a character or the characters were um, missed casted for one thing you can have dewey and gale in this thing and it'd be fine in the roles that they played uh nev campbell should never have been in this movie and the reason why is because if you're setting up if you're setting up a conclusion that basically says one person is suffering uh due to this other person's fame and, and is trying to take advantage of it in some way um and sort of comment you know making a commentary on all the things we just talked about there has to be somebody who survives in this thing. Um, there has to be a, a, a new survivor in this movie. I guess that's the point that I'm getting at. The problem was they, because of Nev Campbell's uh, participation in the movie, she's the, she's the survivor again. So she leaves no legacy to anybody else. They had an opportunity with Jill, but then they decided to make her the killer, which is fine. Had they either made Jill the survivor and somebody else the killer... Or had they had a character in this thing who, you know, is sort of the innocent victim of all of this. You know, if Jill's grand design was to say, look, you know, I've had my cousin out and just mention her by name. Um, just, I've had a cousin out there who, you know, just happened to survive a whole bunch of killings. Um, and she, if she became famous for that. So I'm going to kill all you fuckers and then I'm going to fake my own. And I'll be the survivor girl, and I'll be famous, just like my cousin. And have the last girl standing be like, you're a sick puppy. You're, you're, you're a crazy person. And she survives. As purely that, a technicality, they did not actually film the death of Kirby. She gets stabbed by Charlie, and then he leaves. But they never actually show her dead. So there is theoretically room, if they do a Scream 5, to bring her back and leave Nev Campbell out of it. Well, again, hypothetically, point, there is hypothetically that door, but I I agree with your point. Yeah, I mean the, the bigger and, and that's fine, but the, the bigger point that I'm making is the movie made it so that once again this whole thing rests upon Nev Campbell's shoulders when and they missed an opportunity to anoint a new survivor girl, you know, somebody else that carries the mantle for this thing. And considering the fact that you've ne you know the only thing that Nev Campbell added to this movie was an opportunity to point out the fact that she's a do-nothing heroine. And that, to me, is the ultimate weakness of Screen 4. It's instead of 
anointing uh, a, a new a new survivor, a new story, get us going in a new direction. They rehashed the same exact shit from the first movie with updated memes and themes. Sean, your final word on Scream 4. It's not perfect, and I know that they meant to launch a new trilogy with it, but actually what I think happened is the way that it ultimately ended, quite frankly, you could end the series there and it would be okay. I mean, I would be fine with it. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe you didn't establish uh, a new legacy for a new trilogy, um, kind of the way that uh, the Saw movies did after Amanda and Jigsaw. Um, although that's another franchise we got to get to sometime. Um, well, to, we'll do that in October while Mark's gone, I think. Because How many weeks I, do you think are in October? You guys committed to 97 Hellraisers. There's only a few of them, and we could do just two. One that talks about the good ones, because there's only a few, and then one talking about all the bad ones, and there's a lot of them. That's a good idea. That's actually a very good idea, and one that I'm going to keep in mind. Uh, however, more to the point for right now. Um, the fact is, is they brought the series back largely to what made it great. In that sense, this movie, I think, is is like the Rocky Balboa of the Scream franchise. Uh, Scream 3 was bad. I There are times watching it when I really hate referring to it as a Scream movie because of everything that we went over at so very much length. <laughs> but in this case, all the hallmarks of the series are back. They're not necessarily perfect. They're maybe a little tainted both by age, by how bad Scream 3 was. Um, but it has, it has the tone again. It has the right amount of menace to Ghostface. It goes back to the two-killer formula. It has the main three actually acting and sounding like themselves again. Which, just it as has a side all- note, the dynamic between Gale and Dewey and all of that therein was, I thought, was really, really well and one of the great things about this movie. But please continue. Right. right. It, it, it has all the common... It also has, thank God, all the commentary on how on where the genre has been in the last ten years... And it just says, okay, let's see where we are with the horror genre. And boy, does it kind of (laughs) suck. The really funny thing about this, though, and this is kind of what I'm going to be, what I'm going to close on, is it's it's an interesting point in the career arc of Wes Craven. Because one of the things he's most famous for is the fact that he made the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Various other directors took over the numerous horrible sequels that followed it and made it everything that weakened, that watered down the franchise. Then Wes came back, took over took over again for Wes Craven's new nightmare, basically said, let me show you how it's done. And God damn it, it was a return to form, and those are two of my all-time favorite movies, Nightmare and New Nightmare. Then you go to this movie, and actually you've got Wes there directing for all four of them. But in this case, in kind of a similar situation, you had Kevin Williamson do the first two movies, stepped out entirely to do the third one. 
They bring in somebody else who doesn't just shit the bed. He shits the bed, jumps around in it, and then smears the walls with feces. <laughs> so then they decide to do a fourth movie, and they manage to get Kevin to come back, reteam with Wes, and do things the way they should be done. And lo and behold, it proves that actually it wasn't entirely Wes Craven that was the difference maker in this one. No, if anything, the MVP of this entire series, the most crucial part of it, is in fact Kevin. Because he was the one that gave Wes the characters to work with, that gave him the real concept of it. And Wes took it and directed it in his own fantastic style. So... It brings everything around just enough that actually I would beg the Weinsteins, plead with them, for every motherfuck's sake, just this one time, do something smart, and don't make a fifth movie. Leave it alone. And if anything, if you do bring anybody back, what I would do, is yes, indeed, kill off at least two, if not all three of the main characters throughout the fifth throughout the fifth movie and actually center it on Kirby. That would be what I what I would do. Because you never did actually you never did actually kill her and actually a a new scream anthology fronted by Hayden Panettiere, you know, after the way she performed in that movie I could actually see it. I mean, as long as you had Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven on board with it, go for it. Game on. Absolutely. I would be down for that. But on the other hand, if this is the eulogy, the send-off for the franchise, I am totally cool with that, too. There's a picture as I'm as I'm listening to you and I'm pulling up a picture to post the podcast later. This is one that says "Keep calm and kill Sydney." <laughs> I like that. I really like that. I may have to use that. <laughs> um, I, I, I will at least use it for the manic expressions one, if not, uh, not if not for the uh, <laughs> for the four hundred one post, Robert. Um, your your final words in 50 words or less on Scream 3 and Scream 4, and really anything else you want to say about the franchise since we're closing up shop on this uh, series of movies. Uh, you know, when we started this, I said I thought they went downhill after the first one, and I will stand by that. A lot of these tend to. There are There are some movies out there and some franchises that actually do go up in quality from the first one. Uh, when we get... A little preview. I think Superman 2 is better than Superman 1 when we do the Superman roundtable thing because I prefer Superman 2 to 1. But it's really hard to equal or better something when you get a franchise going, and especially in horror. I mean, horror is exceedingly difficult to actually top the original. It's been done a couple of times, but by and large, you have something awesome, and then it just keeps turning enough of a profit so that you keep making movies at the right budget, and the name sells enough tickets to justify its continued existence. Saw was that way for a while, which was really sad because I so loved the first two. And 
that it just turned into if we make it for X amount of dollars, we're guaranteed X amount of ticket sales just based on the franchise name. And it, it, it's sad. It, it's really sad, especially when you have something – I'll say especially in the case of Scream because the first one was so different from what was going on at the time. I mean, you know, nowadays you always have the black guys who say, no, I've seen this movie, the black guy dies first. But at the t- but you didn't get a lot of that at the time, so you had this really kind of groundbreaking, different, self-referential revitalization of the whole genre. And then b- because it made money, we have to make more of them. And they just kind of declined in quality. And I will agree that 4 at least came back to form. I mean, you had the great ghost face kill where I didn't say I was in your closet, and then he proceeds to cover the entire room with that poor girl's blood. Oh, yes. I like his sequence in the parking garage, too, uh, with Sidney's publicist when he kills her and then throws her off of the building and almost hits Dewey. I mean, there are are good moments here. It returns to the form of the Scream movies. It just had so much, the whole franchise had so much to live up to after the first one, and it seemed almost, it, it was made, the whole problem was magnified by issues not necessarily dealing with the movie. You know, Scream 2 was done on a really truncated timetable. It was released the next year. We talked at length about how you could have improved that one. 3 didn't have the right, the correct writer, and for as much good as there is in Wes Craven, in a lot of ways, he's the type of director who needs a strong script to back up what he brings to the table as a director, and I say the same thing about Michael Bay. I don't like Michael Bay, but he has made movies that I... There are a few of his movies that I enjoy, and you can tell it has very little to do with him. It's more to do with the people who wrote the script and the screenwriting and just presenting him with something that he can add to that can stand on its own, that his style enhances as opposed to detracts to. And I think in some ways that was the problem with 3, was Wes Craven didn't have the right script. Did... Did Wes Craven write Red Eye, or was he working off somebody else's script? I don't know. I I would have to look it up, but... You know, the crazy thing about that is I didn't hate elements of that movie. My problem with that is it's a nice idea, but I don't think it makes for a 90-minute feature. Even though Killian Murphy is awesome. Yeah, because, I mean, after all, I mean, he wrote Red Eye. He wrote, uh, he wrote Nightmare. He wrote... He wrote uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, obviously. Um, I know I'm missing one that I wanted to reference, too, and I'm trying to think what it was. Um, okay, I'll give him Hills Have Eyes. There, There's that one. Uh, Last House on the Left. Okay, Last House on the Left was... It, it's a clunker. It's, it's one that people like to watch to say that they've seen it because it's such a spectacle. It's it's, a, it's not a bad idea, but it's just... It's West very young and still kind of figuring things out. Um, but I, I think the movies that most prove that, that he can write when he's got a good idea um, are absolutely the two Nightmare movies that he did. Because all you have to do to look, at, look for proof of that is the fact that all the sequels between Nightmare and New Nightmare tanked, and the fact that that's not God accurate. In, that got that got in heaven. Um, 
the uh, the remake weighs Jackie Earl Haley being a perfectly good Freddy Krueger by giving him a terrible script to work with. Uh, I have to disagree with you discussing them tanking. Uh, technically speaking, four made a lot of money, but I believe because that's Dream Master, and my personal belief is that four was able to succeed because three was actually very good. And I know you're not a big fan of the of those, but I really enjoyed uh, Dream Warriors as a, and I, I can see the point that a lot of the uh, Wes Craven fans have about it not necessarily being the same. I enjoyed it, and I think 4 piggybacked off of that success, because 4 was actually quite financially successful. 3 was financially successful as well. Uh, 4 was the most well, su- four was the yeah. most successful for a while. <laughs> gentlemen, 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 we're, we're spiraling, and we're going to end up losing recording time. Okay, okay, fair enough. So, Robert... Um, if you just want to give us ten more words here to wrap things up, since we started going off the rail there. Um, you know, I'm kind of with you guys. I hope they leave it alone. If they do bring it back, they either need to kill Sydney or just have her be absent from it completely. I would say, my, my I'll tell you what my vote is. My vote, fo- my my vote is that if. I would prefer if they just left it alone. Um, but if they're going to, you know, to take your guys' idea, they either bring on completely new actors or they continue with Penn and Teller's uh, story. You know, it turns out she's still alive uh, somehow. Um, it, let's put it this way: it, they can't have Sydney in the movie at all. I don't even want her to be killed. I just stop resting on. Let let this be this girl's story and go from there. Let you know. Let leave. Stop depending on Sydney. And, and this is what I want to end on. It's a really, really short sentence. Um, I, my problem with Hollywood, in and of itself, is that they're too dependent on the uh, the easy answer. You know, it's like they don't. I feel like the executives and the creative people don't really sit down in a room together and really think these things out. I think it's kind of the problems they had with uh, you know with, with the Superman movies that never got made, which was, well, we need to make these things into toys. Well, you know, but that, that, that that's not in the comic book. And there's, there's always this fight over, you know, how to, how to best squeeze money out of this thing versus what looks the best on film. And I can almost hear someone in the studio saying, well, if you're going to do Scream, you have to have Nev Campbell, and she's a star of this thing, instead of really thinking outside of the box on how you can truly reinvent this. That's, and that's my biggest criticism of Scream 4, which was, they tried to reinvent it, and in some ways they did, but ultimately what stops them from – which how they stop short from reinvention is the inclusion of the Sydney character. It's too easy. It was lazy. It was not thought out, and it's, it's everything that I can't stand about Hollywood. But in and of itself, the Scream franchise I think is one of the better – uh, franchises we've talked about since we started the long road to ruin, and you know, as much as I keep saying, oh, I'm not a fan of horror movies and all that, um, I could, I, I'm glad we got it around to talking to it and talking about it. You know, I would, I would, I would venture to say that we've probably spent uh, more time and more thought on this movie than anyone who actually worked on it. So, <laughs> um, that being said, I want um, again a very, very, very short answer to the following question. Um, one, Robert and Sean, Sean first, 
was screen were Scream Three and Scream Four horror movies? Uh by categories Yes they were. I mean I'm not sure I don't know. I mean I I'm tempted to just kind of default almost to the to save and suplex the train because I'm not sure what else to say about that. I mean, they weren't necessarily scary ones, definitely not the way Scream was. Doesn't horror uh, have to be scary? Well, not always. Ideally, ideally, it's supposed to at least try to be. I think that's uh, I, I think that's why I'm hung up on this, is I don't think three works as a horror movie. It's more of a violent mystery. Robert? I'd agree. Uh, you know, again, by category, yes, if you you brought up the video store analogy, and yes, they would go under the horror section, if only because horror covers so much ground that you can't necessarily categorize. I mean, you're dead on about three not having, not being a horror movie in the sense that it's more a violent thriller as opposed to a horror movie, but by and large, violent thrillers get categorized as horror movies for the sake yeah. of categorization. But I think four returns to the horror roots, um, by and large. Would you agree? Yeah, okay. yeah definitely. It's so, just, but, talk but, to me yeah, about yeah. Final Destination for a moment, because that's um, it's obviously not going to be the next one. The next one we're doing is Superman, uh, then Jurassic Park, uh, and then... Uh, Twilight, and then Aliens, and then Predator, and then Aliens versus Predator. So somewhere, so I'm thinking sometime in the fall, I'd like to have Robert um, on before you guys do Hellraiser, and I take off for October. Um, and I'm thinking one of the few horror genre. I, I have only watched part of one of the Final Destination, and it's the one with the giant car wreck. Um, and I remember watching that, thinking that looked fun as far as visuals on screen. I was into it. Fortunately, it gets cut off about 10 minutes in. The first <laughs> 10 minutes is the awesome giant car wreck scene. Then it never yep. happens, and the rest of the movie is not as good. Well, <laughs> well, hang on. My my question to, to you guys is, is, A, that one, is the Final Destination franchise worth doing? B, is, can Mark watch it without Mark, can, given now you've now had to sit with me discussing uh, Scream and Paranormal Activity, does it fall within that realm where I where it it's watchable for me, or is it going to fall into the it's gross stay away? Um, it has some gross moments. Oh yeah. I think you. I think as far as you go, you could probably watch it if you have the fast forward button handy, because it becomes fairly obvious when something graphic is coming up. Or if I just cover, cover my eyes. Yeah, I mean, the story, the concept is fairly interesting. The way they build tension is interesting. And when you know it's coming, you can just, again, if you're squeamish or if you don't care much for the gore, and, you know, I'm a gore hound, but I know people aren't, it wouldn't be too difficult to close your eyes, fast forward, whatever, through a gross part, because the gr generally speaking, the graphic deaths don't contribute anything to the narrative or the atmosphere that they try to create. So, so that you could probably said, get you could get the full effect I think without the graphic gore. Well I certainly did with paranormal activity, so um 
you know, where I had to fast forward, forward through some of it. But, uh, Sean, is that one that we want to do um, maybe sometime in September before I take a month off? You know what? I would actually be really interested to because I think the first one is, is actually quite good. Oh, yeah, the first one's awesome. Um, oh, yeah, first one's good. And the first 10 or 15 minutes or so of Final Destination 2 is very nice good. Nice Rex scene. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, unfortunately, every single sequel after that, well, first off, there's so many sequels at this point that the running joke is we really have no idea what the word final means. Um, How many? I, I thought there were three. How many are there? Oh, there are like six. Oh, good grief! All right, then we'll talk there a were, bit. There were the first. There were three, four. Uh, I think five or six was in 3D. I think no, there was Final Five, and then six was in 3D. It was Final Destination 3D? Yeah, I, I mean it's it's you know it's the same snarky joke that some people make about the fact that uh, Final Fantasy is up to over 15 games now. <laughs> um, okay. So this is something so. that we'll look at. We'll look at doing um, next. Uh, so Long Road to Ruin is actually going to stay on schedule. Um, as it turns out, the the person that got screwed out of his podcast was Robert Cooper, because uh, we won't be doing the Megadeth until well after I get back from the Outer Banks. But um, the Long Road to Ruin is staying on its schedule. So in two weeks, we will look be looking at the five, five Christopher Reeve Superman movies: Superman One. Superman 2, Superman 2, The Donner Cut, Superman 3, and finally Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Um, and we're, be, we're going to be doing a uh, two to, to three-hour total podcast. I will be setting it for the recorded time for two hours, and then there will be an hour um, after that as opposed to 90 minutes plus however long we talk after. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're working on about two hours right now. No, two and a half hours actually tonight. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, and then after you and your that... You privacy issues, Mark. Yeah. And then after that is uh, Jurassic Park, well, which we'll be doing um, uh, at the end of June, I think. So those are the next couple of long roads to ruin. Uh, Sunday nights, the Ground and Pound show, uh, Megadeth podcast resumes June 25th. And uh, I'll probably, you can probably catch me doing God knows what on the Casual Heroes uh, over the next couple of days. I know we'll be recording with them on Wednesday. Plus, if you want to hear me rant and rave more about the kid who put, who put up, uh, who got child porn charges after he put up uh, a video of him having sex with a girl, uh, if you want to hear me rant about that or just make fun of Florida Man, uh, from the right radio, the right hook, uh, 9 o'clock Thursday night. Robert, what are you plugging? Quickly, quickly, quickly. Quickly, quickly. Okay, Thursday. Everyone Loves a Bad Guy is back, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard. I welcome Robert Cooper back. We're going to talk to Hulk's bad guys. Uh, Red Hulk, Abomination, Absorbing Man, all the good stuff, all the guys who've come across the Hulk and how badly that worked out for them. This Sunday, I... It is this Sunday I'm hosting Ground and Pound, right, Mark? Yep, the next the, the next two Sundays. Yeah. This Sunday, I will be hosting the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. Sunday... Oh, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Friday, look for Locked in the Guillotine. I get to talk about injury replacements. It's in the 411 MMA zone. Injury replacements, I'll break down the upcoming UFC on Fuel TV card featuring Nogueira versus Verdum and a bunch of scrubs. By the way, breaking news, 
they moved, well, they know they moved Pakraic and whoever the hell he's fighting onto the main card. Shogun versus Chael Sonnen is headlining Fox oh. Sports One in Boston, and uh, and Ben Henderson versus TJ Grant is headlining the Milwaukee card. Okay, I didn't see that. Yeah, that that, that all just got posted in the last hour. Also, okay. uh, neither of you guys Yankees fans, are you? Um, I am just because I used to live in New York. Um, well, uh, A Rod is headlining along with Ryan Braun the list of uh, ML eighteen MLB players who are facing uh, suspension for their reported involvement with a shady Miami pharmaceuticals lab. And the surprises. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller. Crickets? <laughs> Go ahead, Sean. Besides, besides the breaking uh, news, what else you got? <laughs> uh, clearly, precious little else to plug this week. I'm I'm taking it a little bit easy. Um, uh, all I will say is. Please do go and check out Music's Three R's on Sunday night. Already looking like I am going to have an absolutely ample amount to talk about this week. Um, and otherwise, all I will say is just my usual caveat to everybody else, and that is never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. All right. Then uh, I think we are done, gentlemen. It has been a small slice of heaven. I look forward to uh, next couple of months doing Final Destination with you guys, Sean. Oh, but yeah, I don't even have to wait that long. In two weeks, the whole world's coming on the Talk Superman, so it'll be fantastic. So with that said, uh, everyone be well, be safe, and behave. Remember to tune in for the next podcast.